All right. Hello and uh, welcome, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about game development, just like every time. We got a couple of great friends in here. We're going to talk. I don't know. I'm just going to say hello and introduce everybody real quick. I got Charles here from Infallible Code. Go check out his channel. Uh, Jason Story, who is going to start his channel sometime soon. Um, I've been bugging him about it every day. And my buddy, Salim, who's been a game developer, game designer for decades. Um, working at AAA Studios and one of my closest friends. So, um, yeah, welcome, everybody. And welcome, everybody that's com coming to hang out. Well, I, I don't have many friends, Salim. So. <laughs> <laughs> I instantly go up to greatest because you have, like, one friend. Yeah. Yes, you are my number one friend. Uh, I'm still looking for number two. Openings are available. <laughs> oh, man. No, it's it's good having everybody here though, and hopefully everybody um, in chat can hear us and everything's going good. Um, oh, I don't think we had any real specific things to talk about today. I just want to talk about game design, um, game development a little bit. I did do a little bit of game design stuff yesterday, so I thought maybe I could uh, jump in and share some of that too, and and get Slim to tear apart my amazing game design. Um, <laughs> or whatever, whatever kind of stuff you guys want to talk about, or if uh, people just have questions about game development and uh, you know, what it's like to be a game designer, programmer, or an artist. Um, I mean, get your game designers; you make lots of beautiful art, as my wife would say. <laughs> <laughs> I still remember, like, I haven't told you guys, so Charles and Jason don't know about this, but my wife, like, for the first maybe six or seven years of knowing Salim. Like I'd know Salim, we'd hang out all the time. She was convinced that um, he was an artist because he was a game designer and he didn't write code. So she thought, well, he must do art. Like, why can't Salim draw? And she was getting really <laughs> irritated with Salim when draw things for her. Like, how does he not? I, I can show you some of my drawings. I certainly do not qualify as, as an artist. <laughs> That's for sure. I, I, I tried to explain multiple times what game designers do since it's not art and code, um, which is just like play video games. That's what you've done. That's why literally your last video is like an hour and a half explaining what each job in. <laughs> I mean, my art is like blocks and stuff in a diagram and in a, in a game design doc. That's about the best I can do is make a square and a circle with a smiley face. Uh, I'm not making anything else. Wow. Well, by the way, I was just really quiet right now because I had shared the wrong stream link. So if anyone oh, is, no. yeah, if anyone <laughs> has joined into my stream, thank you. Please make sure that you share that stream link. Uh, if anyone is confused, oh. appreciate it. And uh, Jason, story, your mic is a little low. Yeah. Okay. I'm I'm yeah. gonna dial dial it in here. So let me know if that's any better. Oh, you sound good now. That's yeah, good. that sounds that good. Sound, sounds quite a bit better. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Hey, there was a question um, for Salim. Oh, wait. Uh, why is it not showing up in here? They're asking, um, how can they make their game fun to play? Uh, <laughs> That's easy. <laughs> two sentences or less. Two sentences or less. <laughs> fun, fun is super subjective, but um, I don't know. You, you got to... <laughs> That's tough to, to you know, whatever your, your design is, you got to, you know, Define what it is, you know, break it down to its core component and then, you know, execute on that. Um, uh, you know, finding fun in the game, whatever you were inspired by, if it's fun to you, um, then you're probably getting close to it. Um, but, yeah, it's really difficult to, to you know, answer a general question like that. Um, um, really just iterate, have some other people play it. Um, 
you know, and whatever, you know, you watch people play it, whatever, like, you know, opens up their eyes, makes them smile or whatever, like take note of that and whatever, you know, makes them upset or angry. Then take note of that seems uh, it's, it's pretty uh, straightforward. Um, but fun is like a super subjective thing. Um, I actually have, have uh, some coworkers that get on me all the time. Cause I'm like, I, you know, let's just make it fun. Um, uh, and most of the time I'm being facetious cause we're like in, in design and stuff like that. And I just kind of throw that out there, but um, it's not easy to make something fun. Um, but it's super, it's such a generic thing. Uh, you, you just make, you know, making a good game isn't easy. Um, but you know, I, I don't know, throw some ideas out, talk to other people, you know, we call it a uh, rubber ducking, you know, grab somebody who doesn't really know games very well, um, or doesn't play them a bunch, just throw some ideas at them. Um, and maybe something will fall out of that. Um, but yeah, I don't know, just keep playing, iterating, just throwing new ideas in, stuff like that. Uh, Somebody, I'm rambling now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I, I like to have just people play it too. Get yeah, feedback yeah. from just Playing other people constantly. Um, Charles, you had something, right? Yeah, I was going to say it reminds me of something that Jason S says a lot. Jason's story that uh, you know when you're working on a game, you want to try to find find the fun as fast as possible. You know, I think if you're working on your own game, obviously, you know, cer- certain genres lend themselves to different audiences like someone i don't like first person shooters um so if i were to develop a first person shooter i really might not be the best to tell if it's fun or not or maybe i would be the best because like i'd play it and i'd have like a sort of like unique perspective but essentially like whatever you're developing whether it be a survival game or a first person shooter i think you can definitely key off existing games you know as artists, you know, you, you, it's okay to steal, so to, so to speak, you know, uh, things that work and implement them into your own games. And, and then, yeah, it, what Salim was saying was like, you want to iterate and you want to make sure you get other people in front of it because, you yeah. know, ultimately you're going to be biased. And so you want to be able to get as many people in front of it as possible to find out, you know, is it really fun? But you, you also bring up a good point. Oh, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, you also bring up a good point about uniqueness of like, mm-hmm. uh, like you, you, you're not a first-person shooter player, but you want to try to make a first-person shooter game. And so you might bring in like a kooky idea because you're mm. thinking about it from a different point of view. Um, and then, bam, you got something new and original. Um, uh, I just wanted to bring up, sorry, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off, Jason. No, no, that's fine. Um, I, I was just going to say that, so that's, that I understand there's two parts of this problem too, is that there's one thing of like, how do you how do you make it fun if you have a mechanic? But the first half might be, I can't even figure out how to make it fun. So if you're having trouble from the start of how do I even come up with what I'm doing, um, the general rule is there's a term called possibility space, and it's how much freedom does the player have to solve a problem. And um, there's, a, there's a great video that's just recently been released by um, Thousand Ant on that channel, where he talks about system thinking and system design. And if you combine that idea with just general prototyping and sort of possibility space, the idea is make yourself some system or mechanic, a gun that does something and then have another system like you can plant trees or whatever it is and ask yourself can you have those two systems work together does the trees grow bullets can you shoot the tree to grow it or heal it or whatever and you may not know what the game is yet but if you give yourself the most amount of systemic connections and possibility space for how a player can solve a problem then you can find out what the most fun is same with like platforming if you have multiple platforms can you only jump up them or can you do something else? Is there another way to solve that problem? And the more ways you can solve a problem, the more possibilities for the player to figure out what's fun to them. Doom being a great example. Like Doom, in any fight, there's not like kill this guy, then this guy, then this guy. 
in, you actually have to look at the problem and go, I can, I have to solve it using a combination of methods. I can use whatever weapons I have. I have to constantly be looking at the possibility space available to me. So if you don't know the answer to how it's fun, start by just making possibilities that can find out what the fun is and then refine it and then give your game an identity once you know what you're actually aiming for. What's great about that approach too is you'll, um, I read this book recently and it was talking about emergent design. Um, and what's great is like, if you have a couple of separate systems, um, you increase the possibility space of your game and probably players will find ways to play it, beat it, enjoy it in ways that maybe you didn't even imagine. And I thought, I think the concept of possibility space is really cool because, you know, it, you know, if you develop different systems and it really lends itself to like something that our channels are all about is clean code. If you write your code in a way that's disjointed and you design on top of that your game in a way that's disjointed, then all these disjointed parts can join up and create this emergent game design that you you know maybe hadn't even planned for, which is really cool. And I mean, that's the core of a sandbox game, right? You just make a world that has a bunch of stuff in it, bullet trees, for example, which Jason, we want to make a bullet tree game. Um, um, you just you just have a sandbox. It just has a bunch of stuff, and you throw players in it. You you look at stuff like Minecraft, stuff like that. It is literally just here's blocks to build stuff. Here you go. That that's like the the starting point. This is what the game is. Okay, let's throw some enemies in here. Let's throw some general normal gameplay stuff, and then just give it to the world and see what they make. And bam, you have you know a worldwide phenomenon that has spawned you know multiple uh, copies and people trying to like recreate what you know what was sparked there. Um, <clears throat> So yeah, like the possibility space thing, you know, effectively is like literally like just make a sandbox. You start with, you know, like you were saying, Jason, that, you know, start with one mechanic. This is what my game is. My game is, you know, once again, growing bullets off of trees and then finding some way to make that super cool, which that's also the fun in game design is like, it's like coming up with something goofy and then, and then mm -hmm. like the challenge of making that fun to get back to the fun point. Um, like, you know, you know, I, I, I now have bullet man. I can't get off his bullet trees. It's super awesome. Um, <laughs> I just made that up. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. <laughs> um, Write that down. <laughs> uh, now they got to come out of the ground and do they use the bullets to shoot or do they shoot leaves? Like, yeah, yeah okay, all kinds of goofy <laughs> stuff. Um, but yeah, so like what you guys are talking about, definitely it's like, I just think about, hey, big sandbox, throw some stuff in, you know, games like Ark and all sort of crazy stuff that just, you know, or, or even, you know, Breath of the Wild, look at, you know, for any Zelda fan, you look at the evolution of Zelda, Legend of Zelda, and then you look at Breath of the Wild, which is just, we just took this core awesome IP and bam, sandbox. And it's one of the greatest games ever made. Yeah, I was going to say that that Breath of the Wild really did it well. I mean, there's so many systems in that game, like temperature, wind, you know, yep. working yeah. with the fire, like just great. And what's cool about that, this is sort of like meta, talking like on a meta level, but if you can produce a game that has like a really big possibility space, then you kind of get some like uh, ingrained marketing uh, because, mm -hmm. you know, inevitably community members will post videos and and GIFs on subreddits. Like, if, like I'm on the Valheim subreddit and I'm always on there looking at what these people are creating. And I know that the, the developers are probably looking at those GIFs like, wow, we did not imagine someone was going to make a giant roller coaster and put a Viking yeah. boat, you know, yeah. down it. Uh, yeah. So that's that's definitely really cool, too. 
I, I would say though, I kind of want to counter that idea just to make sure that we don't lean too heavily on this. Um, there's there's a problem with bloat for a game as well. So so keep in mind, we're talking about this whole prototyping, finding the fun portion yep. of it. Yep. But once you find the fun, stop. Because a lot of people, what they'll do is they think that they can just throw more mechanics in. If it's fun now, more mechanics means more fun. Oh yeah. What happens yeah. is you, you lose the identity <laughs> of the game. <laughs> you have to have a game loop in your head. What is the actual point of the experience? What is the, yes. what is the minute, minute gameplay? And you want to keep that as a tight loop. And all the systems should feed into that, not detract yes. from it. Yes, you 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 are like reading my mind. Um, <laughs> you know, outside of the, like sandbox stuff, but I don't say like the 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 contrast of that is the really tight um, storytelling game, like game like Ghost of Tsushima or God of War, or mm. stuff like that, where there is no open world or, or open um, uh, capability. You know, games like Uncharted series, things like that, where they just want to tell a really tight story, have really tight game mechanics. The game is focused on what it is. When a game knows its identity and a developer executes on that, um, you think about From Software, you think about Dark Souls series, it's it's all a very tight, very well done um, uh, gameplay experience. And you know the key words that you said there, moment to moment, like that. There are some some people can can kind of kind of get you know you can't see the forest for the trees, um, for like a better way to say it. They they get this cool thing. Okay, we nailed this. All right, cool. We got we got more money. We got whatever. We got more staff. Whatever. Let's let's now forget about this cool thing that we came up with and start adding all this other extra stuff. Um, and it just it just kind of blurs what it is. But you get moment to moment. You look at a game like Destiny Two. Destiny Two. You know, Bungie knows how to make a tight you know moment to moment um, mm. first person experience, regardless of all the you know hoopla and and, and uh, you know bad decisions, you know, bad decisions that people think that they've made with their with their design. Um, when you play the game moment to moment, it's fantastic. It's just fun. You know, most, you know, guns feel really good. Um, you know, shooting enemies is is super, uh, super, super exciting. You know, you, you get a headshot on something, it's, it's head blows up, stuff like, like, oh man, I want to keep doing this. I want to do this like 5 billion times because I have to, 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 because, you know, it's a grindy game, but that's just the nature of the game. Um, but you, one thing that you that you never lose sight of, one thing that you don't you 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 don't end up not enjoying is their moment to moment. All the other stuff that happens outside of that may make you leave the game. But you, you, when you come back to it and you just go and shoot something, it's like, oh man, like this this is fun. It feels good. Um, so yeah, that moment to moment is a huge huge part of the game, and that's what you once you nail that, just don't get don't get too excited and start adding a bunch of crazy stuff like like Jason Sam. I feel like I have experienced that with Valheim firsthand. Um, I love that game. I've been playing it nonstop. <laughs> and it's it's buggy. You know, it for me, it crashes. Like if I ever go out into the ocean and I'm like, and there's a lot of particle effects, I think is what mm -hmm. it is. It crashes, but I'm immediately going back in. I play on a server, my, my friend hosts, and they don't mm -hmm. even have the feature of being able to pre-save servers or even point a host name. So I literally mm -hmm. have to type in the full IP, you know, colon port number. Oh, wow. and. And then a password. But every time it crashes, I do it because I love it. It's just so fun, <laughs> moment to moment. And I was like, I, I think that that is like a great testament uh, to how good that game is. And like, yeah, yeah, the game does not have any feature creep. It's got like the right amount of features. So yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. You'll find a lot of games do this through just raw locomotion. Mario is a great example. I mean, mm. obviously Mario games are great fun in general, but if you just mm -hmm. take Mario and put him in a room with just a bunch of raised platforms, 
a lot of people could spend at least 40 minutes just jumping around doing mm -hmm. literally nothing mm -hmm. because they, they realize the loop is movement the entire point of all mario games is you're moving around yeah and so they took that one concept and said and this is this is what i mean when i'm saying possibility space it, it doesn't mean like infinite new paths and routes and things it means at any one moment as a player i can jump i can backflip i can climb a ledge i can mm -hmm. drop off a ledge i can crawl i can my decision do i want to like jump off this wall and then climb up that way do i want to triple jump onto something do i want to backflip onto it it's it's letting me decide how to engage with the problem ahead of me so mm -hmm. i just want to make sure that a lot of people might hear possibility space and think that means lots more stuff to do it doesn't <laughs> it means take a single concept and there's um mark brown did a really good video on this about one button games where the, i think he called it um versatile verbs or something but mm -hmm. effectively you have one button and that button has lots of context for how it, how it works and so mm -hmm. you can you can have a single thing and branch it out in a lot of ways great example of this is uh, hollow knight you've got a you've got a nail oh, you, god you, you, you read my mind you and I are going to become can... fast friends. <laughs> I, so I assumed that would happen. As well. The, the, the yes. nail can leap to bounce off for, for locomotion. So they've taken the concept of a sword, and that sword can be used for combat, and it can be used to move around the environment in more interesting ways. So they're, they're making one thing more versatile and giving the player more possibility space. So yeah. it's not about yeah. like throwing in tons more mechanics. It's about refining what you've got to give you more possibility. Yeah, just just supporting the core core concept with extra stuff. Oh man, Hollow Knight. Oh God, it's Great one game, of my yeah. favorite games of all time. And just <laughs> you're just thinking about the fact that like basically three people made that game, and the and the sequel. I'm like chomping at the bit. I wish they would release oh, it. Oh my God. Um, like it, it's just nuts. Like I played Hollow Knight like two years ago, randomly on a Christmas break, and uh, and I'm like, man, what is this? What's this game about? And I just couldn't put it down. It's it's fantastic. And then I got a bunch of friends to play it. And you know they they agreed with me. And one one of those guys is like super hypercritical about games, and he came to me you know day after playing. I was like, um, yeah, you're right. You're right. This game is fantastic. Um, I, God, I love Hollow Knight so much. It's a great example of tight mechanics. They knew exactly what they were making. They knew what they were making from our standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint. You know, using the environment to tell their story, um, and just the general gameplay. They made a they. Made a Metroidvania game. Okay, well, in Metroidvania, there's a billion of those, but they made a Metroidvania game that stands out. You know, um, you know, I haven't had as much fun playing Metroidvania since like Castlevania Symphony of the Night, um, uh, and ever since Hollow Knight. This is the sad part about about you know an addiction of a game like Hollow Knight. I've been trying to find a Metroidvania game that even comes yeah, close it to it. Spoils you, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like I just play, I just play Blue Fire, um, or I tried Blue Fire. And they were saying it's like a 3D Hollow Knight, and you know, I played for maybe two hours, and I'm like, nope, this is not this is not Hollow, nor is it night. It's Blue Fire. Um, um, I was very sad, and it just made me want Silk Song so bad. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I love Hollow Knight. Good stuff. And and on that possibility thing too, like what I really appreciate is it's not just about what you can do as a player; it's how you want to engage with the mechanics of the game. Yes. And so yeah. one thing I really appreciate with Hollow Knight is that. Some people really like getting lost in the world of Hollow Knight, like just Hollow Nest running around doing stuff. Other people mm -hmm. don't. They want to explore and solve the story or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that the map is not mandatory, but it's optional, and the fact that you can choose to put a compass, but you don't have to, the fact that you can choose to not use any of those things and instead mm -hmm. overload your character to give yourself more power but take more risks means that you can literally decide, do I want to play the game for more for the story, more for the combat, more for the exploration and you mm -hmm. get to decide your approach to the same experience so that they really they know their audience because some people like 
uh, Metroidvanias for the difficulty. Other people mm -hmm. like it for the exploration or whatever. So it, it, it lets you tune it, which is a kind of a, a cool feature. Yeah. yeah, and that's been a big thing. You know, that's that's not an in, probably not necessarily an intentional example of it, but you know, a lot of games recently in the past, you know, three, four years have been doing this kind of customized difficulty or customized new game plus thing. You know, Borderlands 3 had the pulse game where you can define how difficult you want uh, mobs to be and stuff like that. Just mm -hmm. to go through the game again, it doesn't really matter a whole lot as far as you get, you're just tuning your experience when it comes to this extended difficulty, um, which is just a fun, it's, it all, it almost kind of goes back to the, the whole like, you know, sandbox concept. It's like a sandbox difficulty, um, difficulty setting, which is really interesting. Um, and just, you know, as the replay value of a game, of course, because there's 3 billion games coming out every day, it's hard to like invest in one game for a long time without having to jump on something else. Uh, but it's a really interesting concept that, that you know, pretty much every game feels like they have now. There's, there's an interesting question here. I'd love to hear the room's opinion on. Um, so uh, someone says here, any advice for beginners who is designing a story-driven game for the first time? Mm. So I'd love to Ooh. see what the room has to say about that. <laughs> Uh, you guys want to take that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, um, I mean, my first thought is like, make sure you understand, you know, your story from start to finish. I think that's important. Um, you don't want to kind of go into it having like a loose idea. You should know where it's going to go and how it's going to end before you, you know, start developing. And then I think um, another thing would probably to be, I, there's a lot of ways to answer this question, obviously, but whatever the genre of game you're creating, that's going to tell this story. Um, just trying to isolate the game mechanics that are going to serve that story the most. Um, I guess I think of a game like um, Heavy Rain, like the game mechanics really served to tell that story, the dialogue, the the exploration, the way, um, the, way the environment's set up with the static cameras at times. Um, yeah, so I think isolating all those things um, upfront ahead of time are really going to help you be successful in the end because you know things like scope creep you know we've kind of talked about scope creep and feature creep and things like that it's going to help you really stay focused um and then also knowing how it's going to end i think is going to allow you to have the creativity to add um extra bits uh going on like side quests and like branches to the story and things like mm -hmm. that yeah, it, and it's, I, I can't disagree. Um, you know, ultimately, you know, know where you want to end up and then kind of work back from there. It's kind of a cliche thing, um, but, you know, it, it it works out pretty well. You know, it, you could high level it. You know, you could just get a bunch of boxes together. This is my end. This is my middle. This is my beginning. And then from there, you can kind of do some small branching. And then maybe you can, like, go into it a little bit when it comes to the core design, because, as a part of the core design, as you're as you're as you're building, you know, your design doc or whatever, some stuff's gonna fall out from your foundation uh, in your in your inspiration of a story. But if you have this like a full out story, then yeah, like you you're already starting well. I mean, if it's an adventure game, then you have to consider things like puzzles and how these things work. That you think about games like you know old games like uh, Seventh Guest and things like that, old fantastic adventure games. Um, or even missed, you know, there's a whole lot of story oh, to missed. My favorite game. Right? Um, a whole lot of story to missed, but you know, the question is how much how much of that story is like like uh, like three or four novels, but really the game just you know gives you like the the core uh the core story that they wanted to tell. Um uh yeah, that's me. I'll, I'll fix that in a second. Um okay. uh, <laughs> Um, but yeah, so so yeah, I would say you know 
you just have your have your main story like Charles saying um uh, uh and then you know just kind of block it out and then just see where you go from there it, it a lot, people's minds work in different ways like I, I i you know i'll come i'll if i have to design something i just have an idea of it and i just start like kind of you know get it in my brain i'll go to the whiteboard I'll, I'll draw some stuff out and then i just start writing a design doc you know using you know one or two standard formats that i use and i just start cranking stuff out um and as a part of that writing like a new idea popping okay how does this fit with this let me define a loop real quick um and just kind of visualize a loop and say oh man this will work you know let me pull this out um so for me like I don't necessarily need like a super low, like low level idea. I just need something like really simple and basic. Um, and then I just start writing stuff out and then it just turns into something large. And then once I get back and step back and look at it and go, okay, let me carve this out. Let me see, let me refine this down to its essence and then I'm good to go. Um, but yeah, so sorry, I, I keep rambling. Uh, it's good. Oh man, it's good stuff. <laughs> You're in good company for rambling, don't worry. <laughs> I'm gonna try to update the chat real quick too so we can see it in here, okay. so. Yeah, I was curious what's going on. I'll give my answer then while while you're doing that. Um, So uh, this is another one. Just I want to say two parts of this. The the first one is going to sound a bit harsh, but when people first start playing your game, nobody cares about your story. And I really do mean this. And and you don't yourself, if you're you're being honest with yourself. You're you're never going to sell someone on a pitch by saying, okay, I've got a book here. Let me read to you the plot, the characters, the (laughs) characters. And this is one of the worst things you can do for a pitch for a game. Because the the way you get people engaged in your story is you get them engaged over time by introducing elements. So don't start with your essay. Don't start with like back in the land before. None of that. doesn't matter. Start your game, get people engaged in the characters, and have the story grow from that. And mm-hmm. the second part of this is how do you actually do that? Well, you do that by respecting your characters. And this is this is just the worst thing that games do. It drives me insane. Is a lot of people have a vision for where they want to go. And so they take their characters and say, well, he's the villain, so he has to do bad things. And they're the mm-hmm. protagonist. They're going to do good things. And then we'll just like mash it together in a line until the story happens. Mm-hmm. But in real life, that's not how interesting stories happen. Nobody sees themselves as the villain of their own story. So you need to understand your own characters. If you've got different characters, ask yourself, who are they? What do they want? Why are they there? What are their objectives? And if you're trying to write an interesting story and having trouble, don't start with the monomyth approach of hero gets weapon, goes fights boss, their girlfriend gets stolen. Nonsense. That's fine if that's like the, if that's not the point of the story. But if you're trying to tell a story, instead start with who is this person? What are they like? What do they dislike? And write these out for yourself. And then ask yourself in a scenario where they're in a post-apocalyptic world, what would this kind of person do? What would this kind of person do? And you'll find the story will almost tell itself. Right, Because you can kind of guess how certain people thrown in a room together would act a certain way. And some of the best stories are, and you'll hear a lot of writers talk about this, the stories, they'll they'll not want to kill a character because they like the character, but the story's going that way. And they'll begrudgingly have to admit that's what the story needs. And so if you want to tell an interesting story, don't like just assume your character needs to sometime, at some point, get this weapon. Therefore, I will send them into the room and they get the weapon. Ask yourself, why would the villain have put it there? Or why would it be left in this room in the first place? And try to manufacture a reason for stuff to exist. And then once you do that, the story will feel more cohesive. And you'll also notice you'll have more positions to put environmental storytelling because you'll have actually built... Jeff, who works here in the office one evening, put it there and did this and then this happened and then he left the door unlocked because his daughter's sick. And like, even if you don't put this in the story, you know it and you'll start driving your design around these ideas and your story will become more fleshed out as a result. So don't just like make the most boring linear story because that's obviously what's happening. Ask yourself who the characters are and let them tell the story to you. It'll just be a more interesting 
story overall. And you can see that in Hollow Knight, right? Hollow Knight is so filled with lore, with every character oh, has their own little thing, right? So I don't want to go to that whole thing again, but you can see it. Like, you can follow the path. So each character did something or was somebody, and then something happened. And a lot of it doesn't come through in the story, mm -hmm. but you tell you can tell there's depth there, you know? There's, I mean, and it's that, you know, that big thing that they do there is it's it's just visual storytelling. It's the environment is telling the story. Um, uh, you know, same with games like, you know, like I mentioned earlier, um, Uncharted. Um, Uncharted 2 is, is like one of my favorite games, um, you know, outside of the fact that you can replay it as Donut Drake, who's just a gigantic fat Drake with a donut in his pocket um, while you're climbing trains and stuff like that. It's also just, you know, like you said, respect respecting your characters. Um, the the entire series does that, um, but but when it comes to Uncharted Two, uh, like it's just visual storytelling left and right. Like I felt so immersed in the game, and I love playing Drake, um, uh, you know, because Drake is just a badass, and he's just kind of the you know the wisecracking kind of Indiana Jones style um, character, and and it just plays out so well. And you just get to points in the game where you're just like, oh man, I want to know about this. I want to go. I want to go to this spot. I want to, and, and it's just like I don't need you to tell me much stuff. I don't need a, a cutscene. I don't need, I, I, although there's plenty in the game. I don't need all that stuff. Um, um, but just like environmental storytelling is, it's fantastic. You can throw, you can just throw something in the background that just looks goofy. You know, look at uh, uh, Jason's background with all those freaking lights and and all that stuff. You want, you got questions about everything back there. Um, it just brought, draws your attention. It may have nothing to do with anything, but then you start forming a story in your own head as a player. Like, oh man, I wonder what that, what's that crazy shrunken head in the background there? What, what are those lights? Uh, there's gotta be something goofy going on. Maybe there was some worshiping going on. And we would just like, who was a guy that got killed? Like you're, you're, you're like, you're, you're, you're creating a story out of just nothing. Like I got a Dalek back here. You maybe I got maybe a, I am a Dalek. I don't know. Um, you know, it, it's it, it, it's it's just kind of cool when you can throw stuff in the background. Then, you know, you go um, you start just play through the game. <laughs> Man, cat's awesome. Um, you, you play it through the game, and then like something later in the game will will reference something that was in the background of the screen, and 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 you you'll go back to that, and then you know it, it just Visual storytelling is just fantastic, and 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 from a from a gameplay standpoint, you don't have people reading a bunch of words. You look at old games like Banjo Kazooie, um, or um, Conquerors Bad Fur Day, stuff like that. Oh my gosh, um, classics! Um, you know they they didn't have to do much to tell a story uh, <laughs> to get you involved. You know they have the mumbling sound, the blah, 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 sound. They don't have to have you know v vo or anything like that. You you know you're reading you know, you're reading a, a chat bubble real quick, but but they still like. It across because the characters are, are colorful and great, um, and they're not all just like um, uh, two dimensional. Like you said, everyone's great. You know, you look at the, I think it's what what is the thing? The hero's journey, I think, is what like Star mm, Wars yeah, is based yeah. off of and all stuff. And even even in that core concept of storytelling, um, there is no like black and white. Um, it, you know, there's just there's just these these things. You know, the hero goes through these motions here, but it doesn't mean that the bad guy is necessarily just always bad. Um, it's it's a point of perspective. Um, um, he's doing, you know, Darth Vader wasn't a bad person. You know, he was just a tragic hero or a tragic villain. And you know, tragic villain is always like super super interesting because if you can get someone to relate to uh, your antagonist who who was just like maybe presented as pure evil, and in the end you're they're like feeling bad for him. It's like oh man, I really love this game. It's just something that that stays with you. Um, as a gameplay experience. 
Yeah, and there's so many variations on this. There's so the if you're looking for a more linear, linear approach to how do you tell a story that's got that intrigue but also has some rules behind it, what what we were kind of referencing there was the monomyth, which is your standard hero goes an adventure and does yeah. something. Yeah. But a lot of people mistakenly see that as just I have hero. I have MacGuffin, hero gets MacGuffin, yeah. they kill bad guy, and that's it. But it's more in-depth than that. What you actually have to do is structure it more. So what, what, what what's actually going on in that loop, in a proper sense, is there's a protagonist, and then something happens. And that's normally that your village burns down, your son gets kidnapped, whatever the story yeah. is, some event happens. And now you need something. You need to get them back. You need to get more powerful to beat the bad guy. You need something. So change, need. Then you go on an adventure. You go and search for whatever it is you need, for strength, for courage, for a sword, for it doesn't matter. And you're going to fail. You're going to end up having to fail and learn from that lesson, get better and stronger. And then you eventually find it. And then you take whatever it is you've got and you go forth on your journey and you return back to the destination and then you succeed and you're changed as a result. And that last bit's the important one. You are now a different character. You've gone through something and so your opinion has changed and then possibly another loop happens again. But that's the structure of a story. Like it's not just that something happened and they want something and there's a bad guy or a villain. There's this cycle of how it affects the protagonists and the characters. And you can take that same approach and apply it to the villain. The villain wants something. So they they want a son, so they take someone's son. And then they go through this process. And now they have to, so you, you can go through it whatever way you like. But the point is you have to go through the sequence of steps to give depth to your story. And so if you approach it from that angle, you end up with stories that just have a lot of layers to it that you wouldn't get if you just write, you know, start yeah. middle end. Um, another great, like, um, uh, another great example where I, I, I think this is still kind of the same vein is is just like um, uh, kind of the surprise twist at the end uh, and managing to to nail that. Um, you know, you think a game of Shadow Colossus. Did anyone see the end of Shadow Colossus coming? I don't. I don't think so. Um, <laughs> no. If you're if you're genuinely playing it the first time, you haven't looked up anything online and you just play it. Um, uh, the ending is tragic and horrible and extremely memorable and makes it one of the most fantastic game experiences you're going to go through um, because you know you know you're you're riding a horse you're climbing these big things that are just kind of mindless um, you just see these big titans and you kill them and when they die you're just like what the what the hell did I just do um, and then you just start feeling bad about this thing and so this thing that just felt like really honorable that you're doing it now just feels like you're murdering things and you, you, your conscience just starts like, oh man, I like, I don't want to do this, but then you do it, and then you, you, you think you're gonna be, you're gonna get salvation at the end, and well, I might have just ruined it for some people, but um, <laughs> if you haven't played it, then shame on you, um, go play it. Um, but yeah, so like, I, even I like, even that's that too, right? Like there's, What's there's that? The, the, I love how they foreshadow that too. Like you've got these yeah. big, elegant creatures that are doing nothing, and then yeah. the yeah. act of killing them, dar darkness appears. Literally, yeah, darkness, it's like you have to question your relationship to the game you're playing. It's once again, it's like visual story. Or, or, yeah, it's visual storytelling. It, it's it's great. Um, it, yeah, and and you know, and just any point where you can get someone to like think think twice about what they're doing, you know, in this virtual world is you know a. Uh, 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 you know, think about it, having a, uh, I've lost my words here. Um, but any, any time that someone feels bad about the decision they're making, uh, a, another game that this happened to me on, and I was like, it sticks in my brain a bunch is, uh, uh, I'm, I was a huge fan of original infamous 
you know, infamous is basically like a Star Wars type deal. You're you're you got red light and you blue light, and that's the game basically. Um, fantastic game. Um, the Infamous Two comes out, and I'm like, oh yeah, Infamous Two. Infamous Two wasn't as good, but what Infamous Two had in it is a moment where um, Cole's uh, Cole's best friend. I can't for, I can't remember his name for life me, but Cole's best friend. There's a moment towards the end of the game where um, you basically have to choose to like to to kill him or not. And I'm sitting there with the controller. And that moment comes up, and I I had to stop, and I was like, oh, man, I I I genuinely don't know what to do here. Like I I I actually feel emotionally attached to this character. I mean, I played one, so I I had some background form, but I'm just like, man, this is weird. Like this game generally overall is just kind of a a, a mad sandbox game and not the best sequel. Um, and then boom, this moment, I'm going to say, oh, wow. Okay. Well, uh, I, I think I'm going to kill you. I, and, and I felt bad about killing them. Like it just, it, 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 but it's just that weird moment that came out of this kind of generally mediocre game to me, um, that is super memorable. And so now infamous Two, just one of those games that I bring up when I'm talking about this type of stuff, which I'm bringing up now, um, because it was a moment that I think was executed very well. And they had just kind of built up to this without me realizing it, which is another like example of just like great, great game design, whether intentional or not, um, uh, getting you to that moment where you're just like, oh, as a player, you're like completely immersed and you don't realize it. Um, you are completely invested in this character. Uh, and it's, it's pretty great. Telltale games do that so well. I, oh, I had yeah. two moments in particular <laughs> that will stick with me forever. One of them I've mentioned before, which is, um, so, so again, though, the premise of that game is that you start out as just a, a guy trying to escape from a zombie scenario and you mm. find a little girl in a treehouse and she's basically yeah. like, she needs help. And you're like, okay, fine. I'll take her under my wing. I have to look after her. And the whole, the whole point of the story is to get you to, to start engaging with the idea that you're protecting her. And you don't even realize you're doing this until a certain point in the story. And then there's a point for me where it was such, so subtle. It's not like a really, like you could, you could do this badly with a real dramatic, oh my God, she's in danger. She was save her. Of course you're going to save her. But what they did is we're with a group of people and we see a car full of food and it's like do you steal the food the cars are the cars on it the door is open clearly somebody was just here this isn't this isn't like leftover food this is somebody who's built supplies who's going away and we're like we will be bad people if we steal all their food and the thing is though we have people we need to feed and I, I, I don't care. I don't, I'm, I'm a very, in games like that, I'm an immoral person. I will just take the food, no problem. <laughs> but something stopped me. And I went, wait a minute, if I take this food, I'm setting a bad precedent for her that this is the right thing to do. And is this the world that I want to say that we should create going mm. forward? And that was like, it stopped me. For the first time ever in a decision like that, I went, oh, <laughs> I don't know. And I put the controller down and I really, really sat and thought about it. <laughs> and it took me a while to come up with the answer. And, and the same thing happened later on in the story where they said that we've, we've been under attack multiple times and it's like, do you teach her to shoot? And I stopped and went. Mm. Oh, I yeah, yeah, I remember this. I could, it could save her life. But also, I mean, what if she kills somebody? And like, I don't, I don't want her to have to live with that as an accident. And because and, you know this kind of game is designed to build controversy. So you know mm -hmm. they're going to put her in a situation. So I'm asking myself, do I want to do that? Is, is it worse for me to give her that chance? And, or can I trust myself to always be there to save her? And it's just like, like how much layers of depth of story is that? That I, I was like, <laughs> I was completely changing my behavior relative to how I thought another character might perceive the actions mm -hmm. that I was doing. So well told. Yeah. So Sounds like you're you, ready to have a kid, dude. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you contrast that, so like 
so like the Telltale thing and and the and the Walking Dead, um, uh, that that I think is easy to relate to because it, it's like it's kind of, it's real it's modern day life effectively, right? You know, it's just normal cars and houses, nothing floating, nothing goofy, no sci-fi, it's craziness. But if you if you if you were to take that. And the backdrop was the sci-fi world that's something that's not realistic, something that you can't like you can't walk outside your house and point to something that you might have seen in the game. Do you think it would it would affect you in the same way? Do you think the characters would would be as relatable? I'm, I'm talking like like playing a game like Mass Effect or something like that, where it's built on making these serious decisions. Um, in the end, I think people just end up gaming it, right? I want to have a say for every possible outcome, so I can say that that you know I did this in, in Mass Effect two and three. Let's not talk mm. um, but mm. or or um, so because of that, do you if you if Mass Effect was more of a modern day um, backdrop, I don't think it would be as popular. Um, but but uh, if it was a modern day backdrop. Do you think that you would relate to the characters more? Um, and and feel more of a of a I guess a crisis of consciousness when you're making decisions. What is that you're pulling down? What is that? <laughs> it's just while while you're bringing it up, I was just like, massive, <laughs> <laughs> There you go. Infamous. Mm. I'm just like these are all 100% right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he he did say I played all the games. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, every game ever made. I feel like for me, the my answer is. Um, it would make it more relatable if it was in some, I mean, it would, it would make it something that, yeah, like making it more relatable by putting it in a backdrop that I can relate to is better. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, I mean, I, I can't speak for others. I, I played cyberpunk recently yeah. and I, you know, there's like some heart wrenching scenes, right? Well, heart wrenching scenes, they could be heart wrenching and right in the beginning. And for, for, for me, I was like, I just can't relate to these people. I yes. can't put myself in their shoes. So, you know, I recognize that it's sad and, but even then, like the relationships of certain people that, you know, one guy dies very early on, I won't say it, it's not much of a spoiler, but even in that moment, I was like really trying to feel, you know, sadness and like what, what the game developers and designers intended for me to feel. But I was just like, I don't know, you know, I, I don't really, I can't put myself in their shoes. They're doing these high stake things in this world where it just seems like you can't, I mean, you can't really die, but you can, you have cybernetics. And I'm like, yeah. it's cool, but I don't have that same gut wrenching feeling if I'm playing like fable and I'm, and I'm met with a decision and even fable isn't, isn't necessarily something that I can relate to because it's in like medieval times, but yes. I can relate to it more for some reason. Yes. I don't know why. Yes, Because it's medieval time. <laughs> like it's, it's Renaissance, but yeah. do you, so do you think that in a game that's more sci-fi, that's, 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 you know, hyper unrealistic, you know, uh, that it's easier to be immoral than in, you know, mm. a game where, you know. I, I'm going to say my hot take. And I, I say I don't think the setting matters. I'm mm. actually going to say that I, I understand that the argument here that it yeah. doesn't feel as grounded to you. But yeah. I would disagree because I would say the problem isn't that I feel, uh, the problem isn't that it's not grounded to you. It's right. the problem it's not grounded to you yet. And I think it's, there is rules to a universe. And if a story builds those rules correctly then yeah. it feels like there is weight to decisions. The problem is a lot of sci-fi worlds have this sort of dot, dot, dot and sci-fi magic. And so mm. there's no sense of continuity of death or things mattering. I don't actually, th I, I think you could tell a compelling story about, um, you know, a person losing their job and then, you know, feeling angry and wanting to take revenge on their boss and tell it anywhere. Yeah. You, you just have to figure out 
does it feel like there's could, could you get the emotion into that story so i i don't i don't think the fact that it's in space or something is inherently mm -hmm. the problem i think the problem is if you set the story up such that your silent protagonist is a running gunning shooting character you're 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 putting the seed in the player's mind that that's how this character solves problems and so and that's why your character might you, you might feel it's okay to be more immoral mm -hmm. but if you tell a story like mass effect where the story is about a character who is you know trying to solve diplomatic problems you're going to approach mm. it more diplomatically because your your characterization of the story is that way right so i don't think it's the setting i think it's mm. usually the framing device of how the characters work and how grounded the rules of its own universe are yeah i think it's that dot 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 that throws me off with things like uh cyberpunk and even for me, I, I I don't know if it's going to be controversial, but I I could never get into the Marvel universe. Like my wife and I are trying <laughs> to watch it right now, and I'm just like I don't care about these people. Like they, I can't relate to them at all. And I don't <laughs> I don't have a comic book background, so I don't know the whole stories oh, and all man. that. But man, but yeah, it's like that dot 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 that gets me. I have I am I am a big comic collector. Have been for a long time. I'm more a Marvel kid than a DC kid, but I. But I love all the characters. But yeah, but you know, I, you actually this goes into kind of what I was saying, or I was going to bring up. You know, your sci-fi backdrop, and it also relates. Like my point relates also to something like Spider-Man as a character, as a hero. Spider-Man, you know, it's been Peter Parker forever. There's a billion different Spider Spider-Man characters right now, um, but the core Spider-Man has always been Peter Parker, and they've reset him and reboot him. A bunch of times in the comics, they don't get rid of Peter Parker because Peter Parker is the ultimate relatable superhero. Um, you know, he's he's down this luck. He doesn't have a lot of money. Um, he's he's you know scrimping and scrumping here, but he he's got this this sense of justice and honor. He doesn't kill. He doesn't do these things. So that makes him like super super popular. And when you're playing Spider Man, you are 100% compelled to not be immoral at all. Like you you don't you don't want to pass anyone who needs help or anything like that if you have the opportunity. Um same with Miles Morales. Um uh he's cuz he is basically um uh, uh the the next Peter Parker um uh, uh and and he's the same way. Like his his character is 100%. Like he's actually seems like he's more about justice and honor. He's younger, so it, it makes sense um, than Peter Parker. So when it comes to like a character like that, you know, you mentioned silent protagonist, Jason. Which let's don't get me started on silent protagonist. It drives me nuts. Um, uh, you mentioned silent protagonist, but there is definitely a, a contrast there. Uh, a silent protagonist is supposed to be you. So when you make a decision, you are making this decision. Um, Unfortunately for me, it doesn't it doesn't resonate as much with me because I can never say anything out loud. Um, so it feels like I'm just this this you know yeah. old school adventure game box that I'm just typing and stuff it doesn't mean anything. But when it comes to another character um, that's defined that has a personality, it's supposed to be a certain way. Um, you look at Shepard from Mass Effect, even though he's supposed to be kind of a, a blank slate, they still give you still you you choose some backgrounds for him, but in the end, like Shepard is supposed to be, you know, a, a good guy. Like he's supposed to be this 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 hero, um, and you can turn him into, you know, a, a very mean person. It's still in the end, he's still doing something honorable, right? He's still saving the universe or whatever it may be. But on the way there, like you can have him do some really dirty, nasty things to get the job done, and that actually feels like. 
it just feels wrong. It feels like I'm violating this this kind of pure character um, versus silent protagonist. I'm just like, ah, eh, whatever. Like, you know, this this world isn't real. Like, I, I can't go fly spaceships. Um, no one's gonna come after me for doing this 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 thing. Ah, eh, whatever. I'll just do whatever. So it feels less for me. It feels less impactful. Um, certainly when it's on the protagonist, um, unless it is a game where I can 100% relate to. If I can go outside and see the same car uh, or, or you know, someone who looks like someone that I that I may be uh, seeing in a video game, um, then I might feel a little bit more about like shooting them in the face on the road um, in the game, of course, in the game, of course. Um, <laughs> let's get that very clear. Uh, uh, so I think it's just kind of an interesting yeah, you got silent protagonist. Got me started. Oh man, uh, <laughs> uh, but I think it's kind of an interesting uh, thing to think about uh, backdrop. And you know, you, then you go to things like Witcher. Um, I think I can relate more to playing Witcher because swords, sort of sorcery—not necessarily sorcery, but you know, swords and sorcery are, are more relatable to me uh, as a thing because I can go get a sword. You know, I have a couple here and go start striking things and bring up bring up a shield and you know scream Camelot at the top of my lungs um, and raise a banner versus bringing out my ray gun and uh, getting in my spaceship and flying away. Uh, but I, I guess if you can tell a good story and it's deep um, and the and the moment to moment is solid. Um, I guess in the end it won't matter, but I think it's a little bit more difficult to pull that off um, if the backdrop is more sci-fi or less believable. Um, well, I, I think that like one one of the most immersive moments for me in a game was not so it was in Half Life, but Half Life VR, mm. but not the new one. It was in the original Half Life with the mod made by Worm Slayer and a bunch of other. Yeah, 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 yeah. And the moment for me wasn't the gameplay. It wasn't like the major parts of the story. It was near the start of the story when you're kind of going through the different rooms and you meet Alice, Alex, Alex, you should say, and yeah. th she brings you into the elevator and you're in the elevator going down and you're about to basically move the uh, vending machine aside to find the secret passageway. Yeah. And the moment that stood out to me is I was sitting in the elevator with her and she said, oh, hi, I, I, uh, I, I don't know if you remember me, Gordon, and all this stuff. And the they clearly um, recorded that character's motions because she's basically like, you know, got one one foot on the ground and sort of looking sheepishly at the floor. And I can tell I can tell in that moment as a player, oh, she's shy. She's embarrassed. She doesn't know. Mm -hmm. I remember. Yeah, yeah. And I like all of a sudden I'm like, holy shit! I just learned a lot about this character. Like I, in one moment of interaction, I learned that she's got this like goofy sort of self-deprecating kind of awkward personality, and she's uncomfortable yeah. to be in this room, and she's trying to make conversation. And it's like, holy shit! Even though it's a silent protagonist, I just like all of a sudden I'm engaged with this conversation. With yeah, this yeah, yeah. Like. In, in like a split second of dialogue and i think there's a there's a psychological onus to this in terms of how people interact like one mm -hmm. of my favorite studies of all time was they had people at a um uh, i think it was like an art exhibit exhibit and they had people walk around and look at different paintings and then the, the study was they would have someone come in and offer like there's a table full of water that's free and they'd have someone come in and take one of the bottles of water that's free that you could have reached yourself walk up mm -hmm. to the stranger and say oh here you go here's a bottle of water and they said oh thanks and then they'd ask that person for money they would say oh can i borrow five five pounds or something and it's something like 70 percent of people will give you the five pounds if you've given them the bottle of water that is free that you didn't pay for that you could have picked up yourself mm -hmm. 
because it's this reciprocation thing, right? People feel this like, oh, they're a nice person. They gave me something. I owe them something. And there's a lot of these little tricks. And so even in a game, a lot of the problem is that so many characters are kind of Skyrim-esque where they're just like, they're they're dialogue bots who just stand there. And that's why it's so important when the characters in a story engage with you, the player. They give you stuff. They interact with you. They feel like, like I always love it when you talk to a character and they're like, oh, you know, I'm too too busy for you right now. It's like, it's really annoying, but you're like, oh, they actually have a life that isn't me. I'm not not just Covering yeah. in existence, waiting for yeah. me to arrive, you know? Yeah. I think um, that that experiment, I wonder, it would be interesting if uh, they were also testing, like, the pay it forward rule. Like, you give someone a free bottle of water, then have someone else ask for five bucks to see if that person would instantly feel compelled to kind of do something for another person. Mm. Um, because they they were, you know, someone was generous to them. That would be an interesting um, uh, experiment. Yeah, it's um, called the, the Benjamin Franklin rule or something like that where he like he his one of his political enemies he asked him he asked them to borrow a book uh-huh. and because that person did a kind act for him like it smoothed over their relationship for the rest i don't know what it is <laughs> look it up benjamin franklin <laughs> that's cool <laughs> i'll look it up right now oh the, the ben franklin effect yeah mm, yeah interesting <laughs> a proposed psychological phenomenon, a person who has already performed a favor for another person is more likely to do another favor for the other what for the other than oh if, than if they had received a favor from that person. So you make people do favors for you and they're more likely to continue doing favors for you. Yeah, well, it speaks to like the, the <laughs> speaks to the broad number of psychological things you can you can put right, into Well, your everybody game. please hit the thumbs up button. Yeah, yeah. Do, do me a favor. Give me a solid. <laughs> nice. And then after you've done that uh, favor, follow it up with a subscribe. That's how you get to subscribe. <laughs> oh, that's how this works. Gotcha. Yeah, gotcha. yeah, yeah. Got, got uh, a subscribe and like and, and all that stuff. There were a I lot of questions in chat, by the way. I wanted to share one. I can't um, see any questions. I know it's um yeah. something wrong and I can't get them to pop up in uh mm. in the stream. I'd like to be able to show them right here, but I'm afraid Sounds if like, I do anything too wild, I'm just going to break the whole thing. Sounds like you need to work on your moment to moment design cuz uh, <laughs> it, it sounds like I long. need to work on my planning and preparation and <laughs> testing, right? I did not test well <laughs> enough or, or plan well. um yeah. It worked fine <laughs> last time, so I just assumed it was going to work this time. It, it yeah, we, we didn't anyway. derail into a big conversation, so I, I think we probably should answer some questions. I feel bad. <laughs> no, I think it was uh, it's good stuff. I'm sorry. It's a good conversation it's so far. It's my fault. But there, on the co- topic of like story and co- and design and stuff, people. Well, one of the questions in there was about uh, just keeping. Somebody was asking if they should just work on their project in secret for two years and not release anything because they don't want the story to get out. They want to keep it no. secret and keep oh, their God. design secret. My yeah, my advice obviously no, but do, yeah, mm. what do you guys all think of this, this well, whole idea of like keeping your game design or your story or the whole thing under wraps until you release it? Um, no, I mean, does what, anybody think that's a good plan? Well, I mean, it depends. Like, do they not want to reveal something in their story? Like, if that is that the thing, or like it sounds like, like just, a lot of the time they just don't want people to steal the idea. Oh, is, uh, is, uh, I mean, 
I wouldn't I, worry. I like, know, man, you're, you're, there's an old saying: your idea is worth the paper it's printed on. Yeah, like, yeah. Nobody yeah, it, wants to steal whatever idea you have until it's proven. People didn't steal yeah. Minecraft till it was already a success. Yes, right? like yes. the idea is your your idea on paper is not is not something you should hide. And in fact, it's doing you a disservice in multiple different channels. If yeah. you're not if you're not putting it out there, you're not building an audience. You're not getting one of the big, biggest things you can do for your game is build a list of wish lists on Steam, and you can only do that if you put something up there and get people engaged with your content separately from that your game won't get better until you have feedback until you have yes. people working on it, you can play with it and you can yes. do stuff with it so is, is it do you want to have a secret thing that gets released after two years that might bomb or do you want to have constant cycling of improvement and stuff and then end up producing something you're proud of like it's never a good idea to just hide this thing away and hope that you nail it first time without any feedback from people now i mean now if secret means there's me and a team of like you know, a hundred people and we're all keeping it under wraps and we've got an effective, like, you know, design team or development team. Um, uh, sure. Cause you're getting, you know, some sort of feedback, even if it is, you know, somewhat biased, uh, theoretically, um, I guess, but, um, I mean, if, if the core concern is, I just want to reveal the end of my story, you know, like shadow of the Colossus, um, you can keep that under wraps, but still like nail, nail your, nail your product, of course. Um, but you know, if it's worried about someone stealing your stuff, eh, yeah, you you you'll be fine. I mean, you know, to to your point, Jason, like it's proven. Like I don't, I don't want to, unless I'm like some sort of great prophet, and I can look into the future and say, okay, this is this idea is going to be gold. I'm taking this right now. That that whoever's stealing your idea has to catch up. They have to do the same. Like the and and, and this one idea can spawn like how many iterations of something else. So. Um, I wouldn't worry about it. I mean, if you believe in your product, if you believe in your idea, you know, have fun with it. Do the best you can. Give it, give it the best, you know, the best foot forward you can. I mean, I'm all weird, all upset. Um, uh, you know, do it, do it proper justice. And 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 you know, if you if it's a labor of love, if you put all your work into it, it's it's going to end up, you know, paying off in some way, shape, or form. Um, if anything, it's experience, right? The experience of you know getting getting out there, getting people to talk about your stuff, um, all that stuff will pay off for your next project. Yeah, I think that's perfect. That's what people always miss, and I think a lot of people keep stuff secret and they just end up never releasing it. And then most of the time, when yeah. people tell me they have a secret project or they're <laughs> NDA'd up and they they don't want yeah. anybody to know about their thing, they end up not yeah, going yeah. anywhere with it because it's just too hard to keep it under wraps and keep progress and keep it kind of motivated there was yep. another really good game design question i actually saw this um it's been in chat a bunch of times i got an email a couple of times and i saw a youtube comment um yesterday about it and um uh yeah i wanted to bring this up for it's not just game design but it was uh how to basically like how to start a i want to be a game designer i'm in my 40s even 50s 60s whatever um, I want to start doing game design, been doing something else the whole time. Um, mm. How do I start that? I mean, for programming, I, I kind of can give an answer because it's essentially the same, right? You've got to learn to write the code, um, mm. prove that you can write the code, which you can do all from outside of the industry. I think the design part's probably a little bit harder, though. Um, do you, have you seen many people kind of jump into game design you know, that were past? their 20s like in their 30s or older um i mean uh, me personally no um i mean i'm i'm i work with a guy right now who's in his 40s and he's a young designer 
experience wise. Um, but he's just a guy who who was at a company for a long time. And after that company, you know, kind of, you know, got smaller and smaller, he ended up getting an opportunity. Um, and from he took advantage of an opportunity. But before that, he was QA and stuff like that for a long period of time. So he just worked like a legit, honest, you know, supplemental or support uh, uh game development role and, and waited for his opportunity. And in that time he took, um, he took cues from the people he was working with um, uh, and got better and stuff like that. Uh, I don't think he did any personal project stuff. I think he just, you know, watched and learned and, and talked to people and built connections, things like that. Um, but if you are literally out of the industry, like you're in some other industry and you're trying to um, break into game design, like right now, I don't know that it's that difficult, actually, with the the proliferation of Unreal and Unity, um, and you can go online and learn how to build whatever you want to build so easily, um, uh, and the interfaces of you know multiple engines and stuff are all pretty pretty similar. Um, it's easy to jump from one thing to the other. Um, you know, actually making something is so easy right now. Um, it, it, I think it comes down to drive. If you're, you know, if you're looking for your know, second career because you're retiring or something like that, um, and you got time on your hands, I think you can, I think you can jump into game design um, uh, uh, pretty easily. But it just comes down to type of person you are. Like people need to understand that game design isn't just we just put something in a box and goes. The game design is is really like a true. Uh, uh, it's important to understand human behavior, sociology, psychology. Um, these things are big when it comes to game design. I mean, it, it or I mean, video games are just interactive television. Um, it, you like, like you, you know, TV comes out, people are in there, dopamine's like firing because something super exciting is happening on the screen, and then video games are just like the next step. I can actually interact with this. Um, it all comes down to to human behavior, human interaction with the medium, um, uh, and so like understanding that. You know, regardless of when you're getting into the industry is huge and not just thinking that games are just these you know weird um, things that people do when they're young games are are huge um you know you look at things like uh sports games um uh you know and how it inspires certain people who can't play sports um to just like like do good or do better or or, or jump into the industry and, and and do major things. I mean, you look at the history of Madden on um, Sega and how they came about. They came about because someone who who was black and gay um, uh, couldn't, you know, he couldn't play play football, but he got he got into the notion of Madden and and helped bring Madden to Sega. Um, it might be mis misrepresenting the story a little bit, but it's a general general story that you can look up. Um, but but yeah, so like. Like, I think jumping into game design later in life, right now, it's got to be super easy. Um, I mean, I've been making games for almost 20 years, so I can't really speak to it because I got into it when I was young. It's very fortunate. Um, uh, but right oh, now, like, it's you crazy. You have a good point with the, with the fortunate part, right? And this is one thing I always tell people when they ask, how did you get into X? If you're in a creative field, how did you get into it? Well, I would say if you ask someone 
who won the lotto and bought themselves a Lamborghini. <laughs> How do I get a Lamborghini? They'll say step one, win the lotto, right? They, they can only give you the advice of the experience they've had. Yeah. And so yeah. I always take with a grain of salt any advice from somebody who's in a creative-ish field because it's usually a good part of the look. And industries flow and change. And so the methods with which I got into doing this won't be available to you because it was through oh, like a VR subreddit of something other and I met the right people in the right time to do this, that, or the other. So that's one is that it's mostly luck to get the right people at the right time but luck favors the prepared as they say and so you can do things to increase your odds of getting the life you want or the things you want to do by being sensible about it and that's why my advice to everybody who ever says i want to get into games or do whatever is probably don't quit your job and go whole, go all in on it, is give yourself actionable skills, give yourself a job of, if you want to get into programming as a, in game development, start by learning programming. Get a job in programming and you can get money and resources and skills that you can then move into games. It's very, yes. very hard to just get into the, like, I have a degree with game development in the title. I My first jobs I applied for was working at, um, I think it was, was it Ubisoft? It basically, one of them opened up a, a an office in Galway where I lived and it was like I thought I could just get into games and it doesn't work like that they wouldn't even let me be in the call center without four years of call center experience like you can't just leap into this experience so mm. it, it, it usually works through you you set yourself up and then you sort of route your way in by joining communities meeting people doing game jams it's networking it's finding the right connections so there's no there's no like direct path but I would say just be careful in terms of taking raw advice from strangers like even myself, but yeah. just make a point of like, be pragmatic and set yourself up in such a way where you're likely to meet the right people. Yeah. 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 Uh, meeting people is the most important part. Like, having the the network and the, the connections. I mean, I got into the game industry from meeting people that I played video games with. I mean, Ed, I, I told you many times, Lane, like Ed was, Ed, sent me a message on everquest i logged in to say hi to people he sent me a message and said hey you want to come work for me first game job <laughs> all right like in qa and yeah i was like all right this is all it just came from you know talking to people relatively constantly and about the things they were doing too so it happened to know that i knew how to write some code because i'd showed him some things and talked about things um before um totally unrelated not like trying to work there or anything just but i think that same kind of thing just meeting a lot of people talking to people i've known a lot of people who were in their early 20s um even like teens that got into game programming jobs as their first job but they were also i mean all of the ones is again probably my exposure but they were all very active in going to things like uh meetups and user group type things or they were active in like a twitch or discord or somewhere so they had people that they were talking to relatively often and then they look at maybe doing a little bit of contract stuff at first and they got into the industry um and got hired i, I can think of quite a few people um just that's, that's pretty much my story exactly um, the same thing start, start with the job working in, in enterprise development doing contract work on the side met mm -hmm. the right people they invited me to work on a game jam met a bunch of game developers they wanted me to work on other projects all of a sudden i'm doing unity stuff for a living yeah mm -hmm. For for me here, there there are a lot of uh, Unity meetups too. So there are a lot of like people just getting straight into not even having to do the the corporate in corporate stuff like I did in the past and like you did. Like they're just going straight in. Like the meetups are all Unity and game development related, and they're hiring. I mean, they're still not necessarily games that they're working on, but they're working in game engines at the very least a lot of the time. You know, most got, most of the games too. My path in the industry was way different and goofy. Um, 
but it was literally luck. It was <clears throat> after a series of crazy things, Navy, you know, you know, discharged because um, I was uh, disabled um, doing uh, uh, game reviews on this little startup online magazine with a friend that I met through a girlfriend. Um, and then I ended up working at GameStop just because I wanted to be around video games. And um, this guy, John Bautista, he walked into GameStop working at uh, Sony Alliance Entertainment, which was right down the street. And he just randomly was like, hey, you want to come work at SOE? And I went and interviewed, became a, a GM for EverQuest, and then worked in QA and got a chance to work on Star Wars Galaxies. And that was it. Um, you know, I went went out to Austin, worked in Star Wars Galaxies for a little bit, like a dream, dream, dream job. You know, Star Wars fan, uh, Star Wars Galaxies, is, you know, the first Star Wars MMO, um, working with Raph Koster. Um, and worked with Jalen Brack, who's the president of Blizzard, um, uh, and you know came back, got a job with EverQuest, and that's all she wrote. Um, uh, you know, I, I wasn't even thinking about being a game designer or anything like that. I just liked video games. I, I liked writing about them. I liked you know doing customer service for them. Um, you know, I started tech support was my first thing, answering phones, getting cussed at, and called all kinds of racist slurs and all kinds of goofy stuff. Um, uh, and you know just because some guy randomly walks in GameStop and looks at me and it's like, Hey, I remember you're a cool dude. Do you want to come work for us? And boom, 20 years later, I, I got a job working on something I never thought I'd be able to work on and having fun with it. Um, so yeah, you, you paths are completely different for everybody. Um, but we all end up, you know, in a good place, hopefully, uh, cause making games is super fun. It's hard. It's, it's, it's hard as hard as heck, but, uh, it is super fun. It's one of the greatest jobs to ever have. I think that's, I mean, I know something that Jason and I have talked about a lot on our live streams is just, you know, authentically being a part of a community and positioning yourself. And, and I think everyone's going to have a similar story. Like they were doing something slightly related to game development, game design, and then they happened to be hooked up with someone who could propel them in the right direction. Um, I think it's, you know, it, it feels like luck, but yeah, I mean, uh, preparation favors. What, what is it, Jason? What's, the, what's your... Uh, Quote there. Sorry, which quote? Something favors the or luck favors oh, luck, the prepared. Luck favors the prepared. Yeah, 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 yeah. Essentially, that's just what you have to do. You just have to keep um, staying in it, being a part of communities if you can, trying to just work with people, um, and eventually something will stick. I yeah. think there's plenty of opportunities out there. The industry is constantly growing. So, yeah, yeah. passion, passion, desire are the fuel. Yeah. Um, if you don't have that, then and it's just not going to happen uh, no matter how and you won't make opportunities for luck to happen right you gotta yeah. you gotta be constantly out there doing stuff and pushing to to get those lucky moments a lot of people sit around and just do nothing and wait expecting something lucky to just appear but yep. that, yep. that never yep. happens right like you're never like just sitting at home doing absolutely nothing you never talked to anybody did anything and Suddenly, somebody gave gives you this great great position. Or something. Yeah, th th this was one of the the pushbacks I had in a comment I said before, which is I said if you want to if you want to meet people, a great example is Discord groups. Like hint hint, both of these guys have their own Discords you can join where you can meet up with people, and I'm in them, and you can chat to people about pretty much everything. And I said some of the best opportunities I've gotten were people DMing me or contacting me through those groups because they've seen me in them. And I said, if you join groups like that and, and are talking to people, people will see you in those groups and, and you're likely to meet up. But then someone said, well, I'm in lots of groups and I'm not getting any feedback. And then I said, how much 
do you ask questions versus do you answer them? In in one of the communities, I'm like the fourth most typed, I, I'm the fourth most commenting person and the other one I'm like in the top 20 or something. I constantly try to help people and answer questions. So I'm not just there for benefit for me, I'm there to help other people and people can see that. And and the way the way that it looks is if you're if you're somebody who needs to find somebody to help you out on a project or to hire them or whatever, you're going to say who do I know that I've seen be helpful and answer questions like the questions I have and then you'll come to mind. So it's not just about being in the right places. This comes back to the whole look favors the prepared thing is I join communities full of people that I know are like-minded or do things like I do and I try to help out and demonstrate the things I know how to do. And then I've basically planted all the seeds for anybody who wants to contact me about related things. I didn't just sit there and hope good things happened, right? You have to be practical and pragmatic in sort of giving yourself that opportunity. And you're also setting a stage and setting an example for other people who might be shy. You know, they see you commenting and stuff like that, and you might become someone that they know, and now they feel more compelled to help. Um, so you're also kind of paying it forward a little bit there too, uh, which is like super, super awesome. Oh yeah, I mean, Jason's story is one of the people I go to when, when contract stuff pops up and people look ask for recommendations. I'm like, oh. <laughs> right there, he he knows things and he, he's helpful and he's not. Uh, of course, the unfortunate thing is that you somehow met Jason Wyman here, and I feel sorry for you. Yeah, but, you know, it's interesting because everybody I meet ends up being very similar. They all like the same kind of stuff, um, and they're all way more into everything that, that I like than I am even. Right? Like, <laughs> except for light walls. Except for light walls. That yes, apparently nobody is, is into uh, RGBs as me. <laughs> RGB is like the theme. I don't know. I'll have to show you sometime when you come down here, Slim. The whole nope. ceiling is nope. lined with uh, nope. color changing RGBs that go around and oh stuff. Too. I do not uh, feel there's like RGBs every, I everywhere. I like having a seizure in your house. It's, um, oh, yeah. You would. It, oh, it's only in my office. I'm not allowed to RGB up the entire house. Oh, I saw no. that. Uh, the meme went on Reddit of the house with the Christmas tree that looks like RGB. It looks like a Corsair house. <laughs> like, we should do that. And my wife, nope. <laughs> just be permanent, uh, right? Like, I just take some of these strips and just do them along the whole house. Uh, I'll I add only, them along the window and stuff. Um, go ahead. I'll only come over there if you have those things spell out my name when I walk into the room. I can or do like, that. The tiles like, spell out your face. name. Draw my face, right? But, I don't yeah. know if I could do your face, but I could definitely do your name ag- across the, right, the little yeah. morphing, yeah. the morphing fire tiles. And then I can, can go do that. Like, my Billy Jean dance, and the lights will light up as I move. Yeah, yeah, that works. I need to get like just a projector aimed there, so I can just project your face behind <laughs> oh, me as and, a backdrop. <laughs> and, and then, and then on top of that, then we can just have the bullet trees come in and dance with me. And then, we'll oh yeah, out. totally. Now I kind of want some dancing bullet trees. <laughs> that, that, that's the new mascot now, in the background. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You guys, and... it, you guys put in a logo. There you go. It's bullet tree. <laughs> but hey, get on it. You still haven't made the logo, by the way. Slack it. We we got a space for a logo right find, here on the top. You want me to find someone and make a logo? I, I might. No, I, I can find someone. I want you to make one. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I got the whiteboard. Uh, Okay. On the RGB thing, one of, one of my favorite things is I, I had um, LifeX bulbs back when I was in college, and I put them up all around the house, and I had it all controlled from the phone. And, and you can use something like If This Then That to program them. And just, just one day, just for fun, I set it up 
so that all of the lights could be sequenced. And then I purposely had, so the, you know, it's normal lighting in the room, whatever. And we have, we're having a party. There was like, whatever, 30, 40 people around. And then I waited till somebody asked me where the bathroom is just so I could press the button. Oh my God. And all the lights turned off and it just did the ding, 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 ding. ding, ding, ding. That's hilarious. That's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God, that's great. Oh, that is fucking cool. And you're just giving I, me ideas. You're going to make my wife mad. <laughs> the, the, the dumbest one I ever did, though, is there's this thing called uh, a myo armband. It's kind of a, it clips onto your arm, and it it basically detects the the muscle changes when you make different shapes. And oh so gosh. I set that up to the light, and I was basically oh, I, just wow. once, just so I could be Darth Vader. I could point to the oh, light, and I could wow. like rotate it and turn it up oh and down. It was so impractical. Mm. It was terrible. But just for that one moment, I'm no, just being able to just control awesome. it. I won't <laughs> that doesn't sound terrible at all. That sounds awesome. Let me doing that's this awesome. to my lights. Yeah, dude, that, that sounds, sounds pretty good. cool. I mean, I mean we just do that all day. Just, oh, I yeah. just see him sitting there, trusting. Yep. I'm just dressed up. Maybe I'd be able to relate better to Cyberpunk if I had something like that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> like, now I get it. Oh, that yes. was really sad when he died. Then those, then those decisions would, would resonate with you more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Dim the lights when a sad moment happens. <laughs> um, <laughs> get me some of those. <laughs> That's awesome. The, there, there was a question that popped up down here. I don't know if you guys see it. Um, I don't know if you want to answer that. Um, I, in my opinion, um, I don't know, I'm man. Sure. I like them both. And um, I don't know that which one, one was really more enjoyable than the other. I feel like I enjoyed doing um, big company development first and then indie stuff after because I feel like it would have been harder the other way around. Um, but they both were a lot of fun just in totally different ways like big companies you learn a whole lot and you get to work on something that's really impactful and meet a ton of people and then on indie side you get to have a whole lot more impact on the actual project most of the time like you you know the things that you want to do like you can do them but you also have the, the responsibility they're like there's a lot more pressure i think on the indie side um but there's you know, because you have just more more work that you're doing but i don't know what what do you guys think is salim i'm sure you got thoughts on that um i i think i'm in the same boat as you um uh you know indie is you know you end up wearing a lot of hats um because you have to manage so many things lower level because you don't have the support structure of of a big studio um or the money in 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 most cases um and so there is a lot of stress and you end up, um, well, I guess it could be good and bad. You you end up getting opportunities to mess with or learn things that you that might be outside of your discipline, um, um, so you can relate or understand those things a little bit better once you do go to a bigger studio. Um, but it is like you end up maybe diluting what your specialty is um, because you are doing uh, all these things. Um, you know, and in a big studio, you have that support structure. You have a larger team of people. You you got more personalities that you're probably meeting, um, and and you're building more relationships. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, my experience uh, in indie in indie development, which you know, you know, I will admit has definitely been limited, um, is that you know I I came out of it feeling battle hardened um, because I was definitely in the trenches, um, uh, you know doing that work uh, you know when we worked on the vr stuff um it was super fun and super super freeing um to be able to just come with an idea and try to do it 
um, without the overhead of a bunch of production staff and all this other stuff like telling me I can't do this or you have this schedule or this, that, and the other. Now, granted, you know, we had a schedule um, and we had, you know, we had to release things, uh, you know, within a decent frame of time. But, you know, I could come in and be like, hey, like, I had this other idea or let's try this, that, and the other. And I could do that with a lot of freedom um, and just try it and prototype fast. Like, the, you know, um, when you're in more structured environment and you want to prototype something, um, the stress of your production staff is, well, wait, 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 we got a schedule to keep. Like if you're spending time doing this and you, then you're not getting this other work done. Um, you know, whereas in India, I can just be like, you know what, I'm just going to prototype this real quick, see how this plays out, maybe like release it to a small group of people. Um, you can do that stuff um, uh, with, with much less stress, but, but obviously, you know, the payoff for that is that if it's your livelihood or something like that, you are taking some huge risks. Um, whereas in a bigger studio, you can, you know, you have to accept being on a schedule and doing those things and then work within a box um, that's defined for you, which is fine. You know, um, you know, I always say that, you know, production gives us the, the toy box, right? It's just a box and they just say, hey, fill this thing with a butt, as many toys as you can without overflowing it. Um, and all those toys are, are, are all the gameplay. They're all the design stuff. Um, you know, obviously you want those toys to fit together and play well, you know, you, you don't want to mix uh, Barbies with, with Hot Wheels necessarily, but you know, unless it's a game you're making in bullet trees. Um, um, but, uh, but yeah, so, so I, there's definitely pros and cons and, and I've had fun um, in both cases, but I've been fortunate in both cases. I was working with people that I loved um, that I knew outside of work, um, uh, you know, so they became friends and you know, I'm super, super loyal guy. And, and, you know, people I work with eventually become family to me. Um, so it, it, for me, it doesn't matter uh, either environment. I'm just super passionate about the work. Um, yeah. So I find the best in both of them. So, you know, I can go either way. Um, uh, they're definitely both fun. Uh, I couldn't say yeah. one is more than the other. There's just a lot of pros and cons. I totally agree. And I think we both know a lot of people that have done both and they probably tend to agree i think that having like doing both is pretty important though i think that there's a lot of yeah. value yeah. in uh work i mean even if it's like sometimes it could just be that they work at a big company that started off as an indie company i think that still counts like st being in a smaller environment and a big environment and seeing kind of the differences and having the the variety of responsibilities i think is, is really good for just growth and kind of understanding the whole con uh, the whole thing i guess or just everything about game development so. one one thing i will say about indie um is that indie at least for me uh indie showed me it, it compelled me to try things that i hadn't done before but it also showed me what i could do um it showed me how much passion i have for something when i really want to do it um it showed me you know how much i love making games um i love talking about them whatever whereas in a big stu bigger studio environment um you just kind of talk about the thing that's there um and maybe an idea you want to express but indie like you just have to you have to really want to do it to be successful um uh, and for me like seriously like i i realized what i what i am capable of outside of just game design um i also like you know it was refreshing for me to get into indie after being in big studio for a while because it kind of peeled back the layers um, I had calloused over on making games because I just kind of, you know, you're on a treadmill um, of sorts. Um, you know, in India, I kind of got to peel that callus back um, and find that passion again. So it was kind of refreshing mm. um, the path that I went down.
that's one of those things that people never tell you about any profession. Doesn't matter what you're doing. If you love it and you do it as a day job for somebody else, you will eventually stop loving it. There's just a point that that will happen. Like I, w- I was the kid in, in college when I was doing my uh, project work. I would like volunteer to help everyone else on their work. I would read about it in my free time. I would spend thousands of hours on consuming anything I could about programming. And that was great and I loved it. But there just hits a point where you do it 24-7 for another company yeah. And it just starts to become work. And yep. there, there is a point where that passion is gone. Now, it's not gone forever. You can, you can sort of still have to work on your own passion projects and you can do other things. But just keep in mind, like, it's not just because you enjoy work of a certain kind, it's not always going to be fun. You have to accept the fact that, that yep. sometime it'll take a toll. Yeah. And definitely, like, in a bigger environment, you can get idea fatigue because you have to just constantly, constantly, hey, we need this, we need this, we need this, we need this. The pace is is insane, and that definitely eats away at your desire and passion because you just you just have to keep coming up with stuff, and eventually you're just coming up with stuff. It's like, man, this is this is so half-hearted and half-assed. Um, this isn't like truly representative of what something I would do, but I just I I got to come up with something, um, and hopefully, as you make it, you can refine it and make it something that you really love. Uh, but yeah, like idea fatigue has has hit me multiple times in my career and uh, and it just it it's sometimes hard to get out of that um uh and and it, and it can be it can be pretty depressing actually um you know you're working with jason um uh in the game that we first worked on again i'm not sure if i'm allowed to mention this stuff but um at least the titles and stuff but um uh, there was a moment when i was working um let me see <sighs> i think like almost 120 hour weeks or some crazy stuff. I wasn't going home uh, and my daughter was born. Um, and then I was back at work like the next day. Um, you know, I was FaceTiming, um, you know, my son was a year, year old, a uh, year, three months old. Um, and, uh, you know, we had a design meeting one day and I had been at work like nonstop for uh, 36 hours working on something. And we had this big design meeting and, uh, and someone, someone violated a rule, like a standard for our like mount speed. And I just flipped out. Like, I just mm-hmm. screamed at the design team because I was so angry that, that I had been there so long and I'm working on this stuff. And, and, um, and someone just flippantly decides to just like break this standard rule that we had, um, for our game. And I, like, I just flipped in there like, dude, you got, you got, you're, you're done. Like you, you've worked way too much. And like that. And I realized that moment that I just had, I had put so much into this concept and I'm, you know, to your point, I'm working for someone else. Um, and I wasn't seeing any more from it. And I just say, like, man, I, I got, I got to chill. And I think I just ended up just like taking three days off and just sitting at home and just kind of trying to find, mm. find myself again. Um, I mean, what, I mean, it worked out just fine in the end. Um, you know, I'm, I'm also professional in the, in, you know, in the end of it, but mm-hmm. yeah, that type of stuff, it, it can be depressing. And I think the advantage of the indie studio shines there because you can you can kind of work at your own pace within reason, of course. Um, uh, uh, you, you don't have that extra pressure of, of the constant uh, schedule or anything like that. Yeah, and if you've never felt that experience and know what we're talking about, if you've ever done a game jam, mm-hmm. um, take those like two days of hyper-focused pressure where you're constantly trying to get things done and you have a deadline 
and make that six months and then presume that your paycheck only works if you get the project <laughs> successful yeah. and yeah, ask yeah. yourself if that if that's the kind of stress you could see yourself living under for a long time i worked yeah. on a project with one friend of mine good friend like i really like we hang out all the time but we finished one project and i said i need to just not talk to you for one week I just have to not like because he's on the design team and the stuff he was giving me was just this like make a thing that does X. It's like I need give me some information. I can't just I can't reach into your brain. And it it was so frustrating where he's like, we have a very sharp deadline and we need this thing, but you have to figure out all of my guesses of what I want. It's like I I can't do this and I can't deal with you right now. I need a break. <laughs> so, so yeah, afterwards I just did it that way. He just hands you a design doc with the sense, make it fun, done. Make something fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the design doc to like one page. I still remember when I saw the first, uh, when I f saw the Vanguard design doc, the internal low level uh, design doc uh, for the first L -L -L time. LODD, yeah. And I went to the combat page and, and I was like, okay, here's the comp first page of combat. I think it was page 117. And then it ended on page 118. Yeah, <laughs> that was like so this, classes and combat with the whole thing. I was like, oh, this God. document was, I don't know, a good 600 pages long. It was huge. Yeah. And it was mostly story. Like it was, it was almost all story. Vanguard, like Vanguard had floor. rich, deep story. And, and yeah, I mean, he's right. Like I, when I first got there, I remember like looking for combat and classes and it was, I think it was all of like five pages, but you know, I mean, in their defense, uh, we did end up designing uh, actual classes in combat after that. Um, they were really focused on the, on the history and the lore of the game and just some of the higher concepts of, of gameplay, um, trying to stick with the EverQuest theme. But uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was pretty funny. That, that was actually a question that came up a good while ago that we sort of skimmed over. So I thought it might be fun to bring it back now. Is somebody asked a question about they have they have a hard time mitigating that barrier between the designer giving them requirements and then them doing trying to make those things real and they don't mm -hmm. know how to how they, they say that they're not getting good enough requirements effectively um, mm. and they they were asking it's like should there be a person in between and so I'd be curious to see what everyone's thoughts are on, on that relationship between those two competing Ooh. objectives. So you're talking about the relationship between a designer and, and a programmer, basically. Yep. Um, right. So I this is not the leads, right? This is just <laughs> this is probably just like yeah. a programmer and a designer on the team. Uh, yeah, assuming, assuming most people are, are talking from an indie-ish perspective. Yeah, it's probably more of a you know, there's there's not a giant hierarchy. It's just the just the two people who are working together, right, probably. Yeah. I mean, if it's if it's that close of a of an environment, I mean, sometimes those two people seem to go out, grab a beer and just talk it out. I mean, you know, as a game designer, you got to learn to speak a language of other disciplines. Um, I mean, it's just it's just a must if you want to make something successful and have a good relationship. Um, you can't you can't just throw something over a fence. You can't assume that someone can think like you or can translate what's in your brain because it's your brain. Um, you, know, you know, language exists for a reason. You know, have some respect for the other discipline um, and just, you know, even if it's just a bulleted list or, or I mean, if, if, if a designer isn't giving you what you want, go to a designer, sit down with them and just say, hey, um, I know this is the thing that you want to do. This is the end goal. But, you know, tell me how to get here. Help me out here. You know, you, you also have to have, you know, you may have to swallow your pride a little bit. You don't, you know, some people won't do that because they want to feel stupid or be viewed as dumb because they ask a question. Um, 
of someone. But, you know, just, you know, be humble. Go talk to them. You know, like I said, break bread over something. Have a beer. Um, you know, go take a walk um, and just talk about it. If it, you know, if it's just unmanageable or untenable, then that's just some, you know, that's some personal stuff that needs to be handled in some other way. And people just aren't being professional at that point. Um, but yeah, I mean, a good game design doc is pretty easy to write. Um, uh, you have to learn how to how to speak a language. You know, I, I learned a long time ago that, it, you know, when you're writing a game design doc, you have to you're writing for three people. You're writing for designers, you're, you're writing for software and you're writing for production. Um, uh, uh, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta have speak speech in there so the producer can read the design doc and just read the parts he wants to read and understand it because they're not going to read the low level stuff. They're not going to understand any of that stuff. And you don't want them trying to represent the low level stuff to anyone in the public because yeah. they will not say it correctly. Um, uh, but then, you know, then your programmer needs to be able to understand the low level stuff. He's going to eat all that up, um, and get it. Um, you know, and, and I'm not leaving out artists here. Um, you know, the low level stuff is also for art. Um, you, you have to explain what you want to see. You have to try to give, you know, visual examples of that stuff. Um, and then for a designer, you know, it, it's just, you, you have to, you have to be able to read it yourself and be like, okay, I understand what I wanted to do here. Um, um, uh, so like I've learned that basically when you write a design doc, you're almost writing in triplicate. Um, you know, user stories, things like that are super useful. A user story can be huge, huge for anyone who is reading your document. Um, so, you know, if, if a designer is not giving you what you want, maybe just ask them for a user story because that's also a I, test. I them. love user stories. They're my favorite it, thing it, to get. In fact, I, I think like, I, I, I'll say this specifically to the programmers out there because this is like this relationship I'm very, very familiar with, uh, more so from contracting. So, so let's, not specific game design doc, but let's just say design doc in general. Any Usually when you're working with any client, usually a product owner, they want a thing to exist, but they have no understanding of what the technology is or how it works. And I used to be that guy. I've said this before on, on a video on Charles' channel is that I, I used to be sort of, my job is, is the IT guy. So I take out a piece of paper and it's like, I will mechanically write down the rules and I will make the exact system you give me. And if you give me the wrong specs, tough shit. That's your fault, yep. not mine. Yep. You, you messed up. And it took me so long in my career to realize what a just asshole move that is, right? That's me trying to like stamp my feet in the ground and say, this is my line, this is your line. And it's so unnecessary. And mm -hmm. it's it's much better to stop and go, they're they're like trying to communicate something to you. They may be bad at it, but you're being bad at listening. And it, mm -hmm. it's much more important to try to get to the meat of what they're trying to do. And so now I consider that the personal challenge, right? The truth is maybe there should be somebody in some cases to, to do that with you, but truth is there won't always. And so it's better for you to learn how to do that job. And the yeah. way to do that is to just actually engage with the person and try not to listen to the words they say too much, because again, designers will try to bridge the gap with you and they'll try to use technical language and they'll do it wrong. And if you take that verbatim, you'll probably write it down wrong. Instead, you want to talk to them and try to like, get them to explain what it feels or what it looks like or how it interacts. And if you can, mm -hmm. if you can get on the same page with them from a design perspective, you know how to translate that yourself into something that's practical yep. from a code perspective. So just like honestly try to engage, like try to try to find what they're actually saying, not what they're literally saying. And if you do that, your entire relationship to designers will be so much smoother. You have no idea. What I mean, one of the most powerful things you can do to a designer when they're trying to explain the design to you is you know, ask them why. Well, why, why are we doing it this way? What, what, what's the goal here? What is this meant to accomplish? Um, you know, how does the player see this? Like, like it, 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 
it challenges the designer to explain it too, because sometimes the designer is just kind of stream of consciousness, just throwing something out there and they haven't considered all of the, the aspects of it because it's just, you know, you know, like I said earlier, it's rubber ducking. I'm just, just throwing an idea out and I want you to actually ask me these questions because that's the essence of it. Um, uh, so, I mean, just, you shouldn't be afraid to ask a designer. Designer is not the, the end all be all of, of anything when it comes to development. Um, we are just a part of the, you know, part of the big machine. Um, uh, and if a designer can't accept that, then I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe they are the, the end all be all somehow. Some way they <laughs> they might come down power. to just how they're asking questions too. I feel like when you, yeah, when you're yeah. asking the designer questions, you're going to make sure that like they realize you're not cutting down or criticizing the idea. Yes. It's much more yes. about trying to understand all of the details because yeah. like when you think about a thing and explain it, it's very easy to like picture this one little edge case thing or these mm -hmm. other things that are going on in the background without saying them out loud. It's really about like trying to tease out every single detail so that it can kind of account for that. And I, I thought it was great what Jason said about uh, you know, finding out what they really want to, because I don't know how many times I've had designers come at me with like, here's what I want. And then I'll, I'll, you know, I'm like, okay, well, we'll think about it for a little while. I'll start asking them why they want it. And it's really yeah. just like yeah. supposed to be a hack to solve some other totally unrelated problem that's like a simple two-line bug fix. We just go mm -hmm. fix the bug make it easy for them, or we could come up with some better solution or something. So yeah, you really want to find out what it is they're trying to accomplish. And uh, and if you're if you're creating something, here's the dirty little secret. A lot of people don't realize what's really going on. <clears throat> you're, you're trying to get the exact, like down to the lines of code details out of what they're saying. But the thing is, what they're actually secretly saying is they're not giving you enough details, but it's not by accident. What they're doing is they're saying, I'll know it when I see it. And they're, mm -hmm. they're not telling you that, but that's what they're thinking. They're like, I don't know the answer yet. I want to see different things. And you're going, I want an exact thing so I can make it. And that disconnect is going to always be there. And yeah. if, if you treat yeah. that as a frustration that they're not giving you enough information, then you're going to always be fighting. Like you're much better off looking at it as going, I respect the fact that I like just switch roles just once. Ask yourself if you're designing something, do you know exactly everything about it the first time? Obviously not. So if you respect how hard it is to come up with an ongoing idea until it's correct, you you have to kind of give some leeway in your design. So sometimes I will program something knowing full well it's probably not going to stay that way because they're going to make changes. Yeah. And I don't see that as them giving me the wrong information. I see it as an ongoing process to get to where the right answer is. So you just have to accept sometimes it's a work in progress. And I think like, like doing game development is a game in itself, right? It's, you know, it's it's about managing egos and this goes back to the concept you know i was saying about sociology and psychology like it's not just about your customer it, it is about the people you're working with too and i mean this is true in any professional environment um you have a lot of personalities you're dealing with you have to learn these people um and you have to learn how to interact with them so you're, you're going to be putting on different personalities yourself because if you if you respect them on a professional level and you both have the same goal of producing something great, then you have to learn how to work together. So, you know, like I said, like one person, it's a walk, 
another person it's beer you know another person it's just asking them how their family's doing it's it's always kind of weird personal things because you're just managing egos um and you have to also understand what your ego is and what you are able to do and how far you're able to go out your comfort zone to uh, facilitate a relationship with people you're working with because i mean you're all you're all in the trenches together you're all you're all going after the same thing um and if you can't communicate well then man it's it's horrible for everybody it is it is just not fun and i've i'm saying it this way because i have experienced bad communication environment with big things and it is just not great it ends up just being horrible for you personally uh professionally and 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 it can be really bad for for your product and your studio yeah i think that's uh, communication breakdown is kind of what kills projects a lot of the time. Just people stop communicating or, or they get problems with it. I think that's uh, one of the things my friend Chris talks about a lot, too. He's really good at uh, keeping communication good with his teams and stuff. Um, and, and, and just keeping productivity up. Safety. Yeah. yeah, the whole, yeah, just being able to communicate with everybody and have it be a very non-hostile environment. By the way, questions now appear in chat again. I don't know if like Charles, oh, Charles been, been uh, for a while. stepped away for a second. Yeah, now they're up. Um, the people were asking. So I, I did this design thing yesterday. Um, I don't know if either. I assume neither one of you guys saw it. But I went through and did like a quick game design for a. What I wanted to do was a video on how to make a 3D, a top-down 3D shooter for total beginners. Like targeted at like a high school kid with no coding experience. Opens up Unity can pull down the assets, download the assets, and uh, build out a simple top-down shooter, Smash TV style type thing. Um, here, let me let me see if I can share this in a way well, that... Then you might need a more up-to-date reference. I don't know how much of the audience knows Smash TV. <laughs> I know, I know. That's just so old. Right? But that, that was my, uh, my, my template for it. So here, let me see if I can get this in a way if that... You, there. If you haven't played Smash TV, play it. Good stuff. Good stuff. So anyway... <laughs> my, my my overall game designers trying to throw together show people as just a way to throw together something somewhat simple in like an hour um without writing it out as a doc because what i'd normally do is just write it on paper and i'd have notebooks full of crap and be moving it around and this is like my new obsession with building them in here so i just wanted to run it right by you guys real quick and just uh get some tear down on my my terrible design so the, the general mechanics would be like you start down in the middle of some big open area. Um, bad guys run at you and you'll explore, go pick up power-ups or go pick up health packs and shoot bad guys until you die. Pretty much the, the entire thing, right? An There's archery no system. No What's that? Trees. Where's the bullet trees? No, there aren't bullet trees though. So mm. maybe you could add uh, bullet trees <laughs> to the list. I had dragons instead, though. So no, the player was, was going to be this this little archer chick from Mixamo. Um, she looks like, I don't know, she'll just run around, shoot bow and arrow, like, whatever direction. I don't know, however you shoot a bow and arrow. Um, mm. Whatever direction you're facing, and then run with WASD. And then I designed my couple enemies. So I was going to do one of these things as a dragon, just make kind of like stationary, standing still shooting fireballs um I, one of my ideas was a plant that shoots missiles so oh there you I, go I went, with a, I went with a dragon because it <laughs> seemed a little bit easier than finding a bullet tree or a, a missile shooting plant but um yeah i, I think i was gonna go with this as a free one um and then i got my 
my knight dude that'll just run in and and swing and attack with slow damage and then this ram dude i was thinking would kind of like run head first at, at the players and like try to run into them and that's how it attacks so i'd have three different ways to attack that i'm teaching this might be like way overkill for a beginner video i'm not completely sure but um you know, i figured like three different types of enemies and then this was my development plan so one of the things i was trying to do was build out like an actual plan for how if i was developing this game um the order that i would develop the things in the order that i would put the systems together in um and that they that it would feel natural to me so this was my list and i just really i kind of wanted to run this part by you guys and see um i don't know what other shit i missed uh what things i should think about what you know what feedback you have or, or anything or we could just say like jason's design sucks and that's it <laughs> so anyway just do some world building then i was thinking i'd go into the player movement stuff and just kind of detail out like the different things for player movement like i want wasd stuff i want to make him kind of follow along with the nav mesh uh aim with the mouse go in directions not actually use an agent though for the things just kind of writing notes and then i, I wrote out um essentially the, the classes that i imagine that i'll probably use for it like some sort of movement class that aims and does handling and one that does animation. All right. And then I go on to like my enemies. Um, same kind of thing. Like I think that each one of these will have a separate attack class, but that's probably about it. And then this is kind of like the, the key functionality or features of, of my enemy system that I'll put together. Then I'll move on to player and enemy health since it'd be shared and like the, the one class for that. How, and then go on to UI development so I can hook that up and, handle death bows so i can actually shoot the bad guys um scoring and ui again to, to dive back into like ui scoring stuff and then some sort of magic stuff and health things um yeah I mean, anyway that's kind of like my some plan sort of restarting thing at the end i usually i usually make sure to have a general way to control the menu at the end unless you're counting that and ui is like the restarting and all that oh yeah the full well, i was through. thinking it would just go until you died and then restart no, that's fine. Just I often find that there's a lot of uh, game jam games where sometimes they'll just end, and even just having a simple restart button that just reloads yeah. the scene is is one of those like minimum things that's I like. Not to have. a bad idea. Let's do that. So let's do a end game slash restart screen. I, yeah, that makes sense because then it can do um, show like the high score right there and show yeah. how to do. I mean, it doesn't even have to be a scene. It can just be a panel or something to pop up. I just yeah, didn't want to get some it indication. Too yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Um, the only other thing that I think I do differently is that you, you've got this very systemically broken up into units of work, like features that are going to be built one on top of another. And yeah. while I probably do the same thing, uh, I find that if you if you think systemically, it's a lot harder to give yourself a metric for how successful your path has gone. Like, how far along am I? How much work have I got done? So what I usually do is on top of this, I would have like a little checkbox of the equivalent of user stories or some similar approach where I would I would phrase it as a thing I wish my game could do. Like, I want to be able to walk around. I want to be able to click a place and see the character walk to a location and, you know, whatever. I want I want my enemy to attack, whatever, and kind of mm -hmm. see it. It's exactly the same thing. It's the same information. But if you do it that way, you can check these off as the system now supports those features. And it gives you that great sense of, cool, my game can do these things now, you know? Right. So you're just kind of writing it out as a more of like a story list. Um 
Makes sense. Exactly. It's, it's kind of like how a person would experience yeah. the game. It's like they yeah. will run around, they will restart it, they will attack an enemy. And once I can say that, I can say my game can support movement and combat and all this stuff. So again, same thing, but just from that perspective. Right. What is... Makes what sense. Is, so, this is my systems design. So this was how I was thinking I will tie together all of my classes and stuff. So since it's a relatively simple game, a lot of things just kind of tie into... The health of the entities like the the player and npc um so i have like a health on everything a health bar that's linked up to just the player um a player death script so it'll handle like when the player dies go to it'll probably just pop up that other screen and like the end game screen and then uh on enemy death uh, i was thinking what i'll do is have another script there that just fires off a unity event for when they die so that i can do a variety of different things. I can either play an animation, play a death particle. Um, on all of them, I think what I'll do is just add some score through that Unity event instead of adding another mm -hmm. script there. Um, mostly just to keep it generic and relatively simple because it, it is supposed to be a tutorial. And then um, the score controller part would just have, you know, it would be hooked in through the Unity event there, but then it'll hook up to a UI element that does the score. And then down here is my projectiles that reference health and you know two things that launch projectiles that reference projectile and that's kind of like the entire you know the chain of of references for my game um and um, pretty much all the all the classes and all the code to handle this i mean there there's probably a little bit more abstracted away like a uh, player movement but that's not really attached to anything um in, in my code at least yeah, it's it's pretty much the same as how I would structure it. The only thing, the only thing that's not here that I would see would that I would, I like to have a facade pattern of some kind so that there's like a player, and so rather than talking to the health system to avoid sort of um, having having issues with um, too many too, too much leaking of, of implementation, I normally like player, and I would do all of the stuff against the player class, and it would use the services and systems inside of it. That's probably beyond the scope of this like graph anyway but that's right. just the only thing that is different from from here right that's just and and the only reason i wouldn't do that in here is because it's just beyond the scope of the game because all the player has is health they don't like they're just not going to have anything else that's um that's not independent the bow is just auto firing every frame or every refresh and uh they don't, yeah it, it's just health otherwise yeah i mean the health could almost be player but then i wouldn't be able to reuse it for the the enemies mm. I don't know. That was my the entirety of my my design. Slim, did I ever show you this thing? This tool, what? this this Milano yeah, thing. You've mentioned it before, yeah. yeah. So the the game design. So I like to just hit this one. Go to like game design document, and I pretend that I just made a beautiful game design. It's all done. <laughs> Look at I my design, Slim. I think this is what I sent to my producer to check out. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's it's definitely neat for building these things, and it's got like the. Uh, you can do like the the planners for like weekly planners or personal ones. Um, I've been using the weekly one and the the Kanban board thing in here a lot. So. I haven't really been playing with the templates. I really should. I, I've just been like making boards and things for my own stuff. So I, that, really I mostly just use the default ones. But every every like day or two, I'll, I'll come through and just kind of pop and look at them again. Like ah, I wonder if any of these will fit. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I uh, who was that? Um... That's what I was looking for. A combo I, need to, for I need to check this. Uh, check this out more. Next, my next design doc that I have to write. 
Yeah, I, I just like it because it's super interactive. Like I can bounce yep. around and like go look at pictures. I can put links in and stuff, which I didn't know until I accidentally did it yesterday. So you add a link and it just pops it up as like this full embedded thing. I just pasted in a link. So yeah, and like <laughs> I said, I I did that for all of all of the content I've done across YouTube because it's hard to keep track of all the various different other people's channels i've done some interview or some video with so i just made one for myself that because you can have these nested containers it was really cool oh, to that's say cool content i've done per channel nice yeah. that's a good idea oh it's cool stuff <laughs> let's see were there any other questions that popped up um a couple people made their own boards yeah oh hold on there was a question for salim on Nope. Hit that one. No questions for me. As a designer whose art is also limited to circles, <laughs> boxes, and the occasional rhomboid, how do you find artists for graphics and animation? I've been wearing all the hats for a long time. Ooh. Um, hmm. I've been working in the, the big industry for long enough that I don't generally have to worry about this. But um, when I did work with Jason, uh, I mean, we just, you know, how do, how do we find, um, uh, who was that dude we worked with? Um, the dude that came on just before the studio closed. Um, um, I don't remember. We found, through, Unity, him, we found through Unity Network stuff, right? Um, probably, yeah, through the Unity forums. Um, the yeah. Unity forums are a pretty good place. I also always recommend Upwork and uh, Fiverr. It, those are, and I, oh, I yeah, 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 yeah. Art station, but yeah. Upwork and Fiverr yeah. are great for finding artists. Um, you don't expect to hit a home run like your first one, like anybody can get on there. So you might put out four requests and get one that you really like back, but then yeah. you'll know, like, that's the one person. Just keep going back to that person or something. So I would say use some of those sites and try a variety of people. Um, at, at keep the price point low at first you'll eventually find somebody who can do really nice stuff at a price you can afford um but i so, would yeah try a couple the, go ahead jason the, there's a video that it's actually kind of very tangentially related but it's it's it will give you a, a really good answer to your question there's a youtube channel called nerd city and they do a whole load of mostly <laughs> meme content but one one thing they do which is really great is they had a multi-part series on making channel merch for their youtube channel in other words, how do you find a creator to do art relative to your content and your channel? And while that's not technically the same thing, they cover effectively the task of how do I find an artist? How do mm -hmm. I respect the process? How do I find someone who's got art that I like? How do I deal with paying them and how much do they expect? And do I pay up front? Do I pay this, that, and the other? So if you check out Nerd City's YouTube channel, they, their video will kind of guide you through the process of just finding an artist to work with. Um, and that'll that'll help you a lot as an as an indie. Obviously, there's a different scale if you're talking about what Jason's talking about, where it's like hiring an hiring a full time modeler for your project is very different. Um, but if you're just looking to get some work done for your game, uh, check out that video, which should kind of guide you in the right direction. Yeah, I think we found uh, for Monst Mighty Monster Mayhem. Is that, yeah, um, I think it was Upwork. We got a bunch of that. We got those creatures all. Um, modeled yeah. out and stuff right yeah and i mean you can get good character art for you know around a hundred dollars for a good character yeah, um, yeah. and probably less i mean just depending on on where you go but also the uh, the best thing is just jump onto the asset store if the art doesn't need to be specific to a thing like just use use pre-made art until you've got your game done and ready and then you know start 
start going from there to start replacing things and upgrading it as you get progress. I wouldn't I just say don't like sit there and wait to make a game because you don't have the right art. Start making or, the game and then put the art in. The other option is to just make the baddest game that uses circles, boxes, and rhomboids. I mean, bam. Just do that. Can do that really like then games, you... <laughs> like, like if you look at Portal, man, Portal is a famous yep. game for its for its visuals. But if you actually take a screenshot of that game, there is a lot of rectangles. Like it's, <laughs> it's a very very clean lined game. Yes. Um, I mean, look at Minecraft. It's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I will say though, one thing uh, designer friends of mine have said as a piece of advice: if you're not in that world and you're looking to hire somebody. Uh, one of the one of the worst things you can do is hire a designer who doesn't do the kind of design you want and then try to expect them to make something they're not good at and then get angry at them when they don't produce it. <laughs> so one of, one of the best things you can do is check out a person's portfolio and find somebody who provably does the kind of stuff you like. You're doing mm -hmm. yourself and them a disservice if yeah. you hire somebody who's not proven to do the kind of stuff that you already know you kind of like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and that's when you're on Fiverr and Upwork. You should be looking at everybody's things that like, go through, and you want, yeah, you want to find people and say like, "Hey, they did a thing that already looks like it." If you see they did a bunch of cool characters, and you want jeeps and tanks made, you're making a stupid decision because totally yes. different skill, yeah. Uh, yeah, people loosely related but not, not the same. Vehicles, characters, environment, animators, and particles are different too. Like it's all. Don't expect yeah. your your beautiful two D concept artists to make you great three D models and yeah. Much so, like all yeah. designers can't do the same things, all artists can't do the same things. So it's all sub disciplines and all that stuff. All all designers can do everything. They draw uh, we can art draw and they too, make yeah. games. <laughs> right. And they code up the game. Yes. <laughs> Uh, there, there was every programmer can fix a computer and fix your VCR and do everything else as well because it's all the same thing, right? It's just a computer, so it's all just electronics. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you do computers fix it. Uh, speaking of just doing computers, though, there was a question about using uh, an iMac versus PC for 3D MMO development on your. I think it's more just applies like an iMac versus a PC for any game development. If there are any limitations, um. I, I don't personally know. I thought iMacs were like dead and old. So I would assume that the, the biggest limitation is that they're just slow. I thought that was like a model that they had killed like a long time ago. I don't know. Maybe they brought it back. The iMac version. I thought that was like the, I don't know. I, I, as you can is tell, I don't use Is he saying iMac or does he just mean Mac in general? Or does he I don't know. It says iMac in front iMac. of it. But yeah. if it's just Mac versus PC, I mean, there's no real... Um, technical limitations uh the biggest thing is just going to be performance um you might run into some specific library stuff that doesn't work for your for your mmo or your server may not run right but most of the time with an mmo you're going to want to run your server in linux anyway so it should probably be compatible with mac and you might actually have some benefits there uh the biggest thing though i think is just going to be performance because Getting the yeah. same performance as a PC is going to cost you a whole lot yeah, more on the says, Mac. He said he just meant Mac in general. Okay. So the only the only thing I would say as as a caution, if you're doing a lot of development work, is that I, again you could you could work in anything. It's it's not it's one of these things. If there's not like the right machine, there's the machine. You whatever tool you have to do whatever art you can do it or whatever you're making, it doesn't matter. You can use anything. Um, the the one thing is that when you're building a project, there is it's harder to build a project for Mac 
on a PC. <laughs> there's just, there's certain rules and restrictions in terms of having to, uh, with the build pipeline of how it works. So you, you have to do some weird stuff. It's, I don't want to like bog it down with like getting the ID code and having a device and all this stuff. But just trust me, if you're, if you're deploying to a Mac, you're, you either need to have one yourself or use some other virtualization stuff or use a virtual cloud build or something like it's not as easy from that perspective, but that's the only real limitation is that it's, it's hard. And, and that's really going the other way, right? That's just, if they want to do Mac stuff, this is more building. I mean, a 3d MMO is probably not going to have a Mac build realistically. No. So they're building PC stuff on a Mac and there's really no limitation there. Right. Not that I know, you know what that. you're saying. So the, the limitations only kind of going the other way. So if you want the ability to do the Mac stuff, uh, the yeah, Mac is, is a better option. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there is a question in here for Jason that uh, makes me smile. Um, Which one's that? Good luck for you. This one. I'm not answering this one. <laughs> the UE4. Oh, uh, Unreal 4 is better than Unity question. and you can use C++. I switched from Unity Which... to Unreal. Why don't you use Unreal? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I mean... I get it all. I, it's a common question, right? Like, I think that Unreal is definitely better at some things and it, it probably always will be. I think that Unity is still better at some things and probably always will be. Um, I personally like C Sharp more than I like C++ by quite a bit. In fact, I, I don't I don't particularly like C++ anymore um, just because it's been so long since I've used it. I feel like it, it just feels tedious and like extra work, like it's slowing me down. Uh, but Unreal has a lot of cool benefits to it too. The main reason I don't switch to using it though is that there's just no um, no driving motivating factor or benefit. If I was working at a company that was you know working on a game that used Unreal and that was our big project, I would switch over and focus a lot more on Unreal. But that's not happening, so there's just not a... Uh, there's no reason for me to switch. There's nothing that I would gain by switching. There's nothing that any game I've built you know, in the last however long would gain from switching from Unreal or switching from Unity to Unreal. I feel like a lot of the time people see these beautiful tech demos from you know, like Epic or anybody else that makes these you know, great looking demos and they think like, okay, if I switch to that, suddenly my game is going to be like that. And it's just, I've never had that experience, right? Like you can get the nice starting lighting and stuff looking great in, in Unreal or, you know, by switching engines, but there's still all of the other work. And then you run into all of the technical side the stuff on the back end where you're like, oh yeah, now I need to actually make this tech demo into a game. And suddenly it doesn't, I can't do any of these cool things or a lot of them, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and better is, is totally, totally, totally relative. Uh, Subjective. Um, yeah. um, there are plenty of studios that don't use Unreal or Unity. They use in-house engine, and it's just because it fits their needs. There are some studios that use engines that still use C, um, and they they produce games that are just fine. Um, it's just like what, whatever whatever is good for the goose, good for the gander. Um, whatever works with with what you're doing. If you know Unreal really well and Unreal is going to serve your purposes, then then stick with that. If you like C plus plus over C sharp. Then stick with that. Uh, I think I'm I'm more in the park of C sharp over C plus um, plus, but I dig both. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think you can just say that Unreal is better than Unity as just a general thing. It is definitely situational because um, there are some in-house engines um, that you would argue are better than Unreal, but they're better than Unreal for the specific game or series of games that they're making. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's all situational. 
Yeah, honestly, I, I just hate these kind of questions. They're just so pointless and unproductive. Like there is the, the, the IT industry is so full of this nonsense of PHP is better than this other language or, you know, PHP example, is not better than anything. You've got people who like certain languages are better. Other people saying, oh, Blender's trash because it's free. You should be using Max or whatever. Oh, God, it's yeah, like, yeah. These are so dumb, just stupid statements because you can find people who can make amazing things in literally anything. Like you see these videos on YouTube of people making like art out of nonsense, just like, you know, shavings of wood and stuff and making gorgeous things. It yes. doesn't matter. Like it's such a pointless argument to say this thing is better or this thing is worse. There is context and sub, you know, whatever subject you're in and which, which thing you prefer and which is more performant on which platform. Like there's so many, there's so many reasons why you might pick one thing over another. That it's just it's such a pointless argument to like put your your stake in the ground and say this one's better. Like it it, it every time I read it, it's like which is better, a hammer or a screwdriver? It's like that's such a dumb <laughs> question. Like what are you doing with this? Like you yes. can't just yes. say objectively one thing is better. And yep. like I, I know I know people who use Unreal and they use it because they can't code and they find that the Kismet stuff. Well, it's not Kismet anymore. It's now the Blueprint, blueprint system. Yeah, Blueprint. Yeah. Yeah. They love that because it's, it suits their workflow. And I've got other people I know who are like, we need multiple platforms and the freedom to build on multiple platforms is our number one priority. Unity gives us that in a way nothing else does. Like, it really depends on what you're doing. And so it's, it's yeah, it's pointless. Just learn, you learn your tools and use them well. Like, don't, I don't know. And but if you're, making, if you're making an MMO in both cases, you end up changing the engines completely because neither one of them supports an MMO native. <clears throat> Yeah, you're going to be doing a ton of custom work on on either end, yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, though, you really should use whichever one is going to be best for your actual scenario and your your team, right? Like, if, if your team has no allegiance or experience with either, then use whichever one is going to be best suited yep. for the type of game that you're building, right? Yep. If you're going to build a, a mobile game, I would probably go with um, a, U Unity by default. If you're going to build an FPS, like, it's kind of built into Unreal. Maybe start yep. there. Um, yep. and, and, and just, just based, based on that you get people who've never made a game before and they're like oh well all my favorite games are made in unreal so unreal is the better engine it's like well th the most important decision you need to make when you're making your first game and picking what engine is how can i achieve it and yep. the truth is you have to take into account how much resources are available for you online what support you can get how easy is the engine to learn and use and the amount of times you see somebody who's never made a game, never worked with either engine, and like, spoiler alert, most of us here have worked with multiple engines, and mm -hmm. it's like, people are saying, well, that one's objectively better. It's like, well, not for you, who's never made a game. Maybe <laughs> you should work with something that's got more yes. YouTube tutorials and like better resources and work with the thing that makes your life easier to get your game made. Don't just pick the engine that, well, that's the one AAA studios make. It's like, if you if you buy the world's best guitar, you're not going to suddenly be able to play guitar. Yeah. It doesn't work like that. You have to like pick anything and learn on the tools you have yeah and if you're making a project you should be researching what's best i mean you have to make contextually the best decision for your idea um and you know like you said first person shooter you know ue is probably a better better bet because there's going to be plenty of examples out there that you can look at and and take from um but and I there's mean, a networking system that works <laughs> like yeah, there's a network all, library all there examples like you can fail so bad on yeah. oh, like they're <laughs> way ahead on that end uh, yeah yeah <laughs> Okay, I'll, I'll kill that question though. I think, but yeah, I mean, I think it's a good one though. I just thought it was funny because we've we've talked about it so much. 
Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think it's 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 good. It, it's one of the most comments I get, right? So we, it gets we, we asked video, all the time. We, we did a video on Charles's channel, and like this is so so frustrating. We did a video that says which engine do you think is better, and I said I'm going to put a stance. I'm going to say right now. I should have said right now. I didn't back then. I said Unity is better because it's better for beginners. It's got you know easier to build multiple platforms. Blah blah blah. And that was my stance. Really, it's more. I think it's a better engine right now. And then a few months later, Unity comes out with this shiny new better graphics thing, and now literally every month i get comments on that old video that's now like, <laughs> like nine months old going do you know there's a new version of unity so yes i've probably heard of it in the last six months and it says what do you think now it's like uh, it's, that's such a silly argument it means <laughs> you, know? you need to do another video jason that's the problem you need well, to be releasing regular I'm videos, updating. I, I'm going to clip this content. It'll be my first video. Just leave me alone. <laughs> I don't have to this question. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on, Jason. I just got this. Got this thing. It just. Oh, there's a new version of, of Unity out. <laughs> or hey. Unreal, sorry. The new version yeah. of Unreal out. <laughs> I need to have like a, a thing I can paste as like a repeated. The new version of whatever. <laughs> just like leave it there as a default. <laughs> Oh, man. I popped up another question. My answer to this one was just none. I figured I would, I would see if you had anything. I assume yours is kind of none, too. There's one other question I want to jump onto after this, but just what architecture yeah. or pattern to use when developing games. Like, starting out, I don't start with anything by default, and it's all 100% based on what the project is going to be. If it's this a project a, where... It's the same question. It's, very, yeah. it's the same question. Same like, kind of thing. Do you use? It's like, the answer is, you, you don't use the, like... You don't use the X-shaped pattern. Like if you're building, again, I, I love the Bob Martin version of this. If you're building a church, you start with a church-shaped architecture. You don't start with the, you know, the whatever. Like it's silly. Like you, you build the game you want to make by structuring it out for what you need. These these patterns are just like, these are enterprise-level patterns for building reliably consistent, identically-shaped systems. Like they're not for... Yeah games like this you just you if your game needs like perfect example jason's example with the with the graph he, he had features he wanted he made a bunch of features and systems and that's not a named architecture that's the architecture his game needs for the thing he is making yeah. don't just pick one of these things and put it in if your game grows to the point that it needs service location and architectures because you're doing something that has a lot of third-party stuff sure but use these tools to like fit the job it's like if, if you start with this it's like you pick up a fork because you want to be able to eat your food and you get soup right you don't you don't you don't eat the fork. <laughs> you pick the tool for the job you don't start with the tool and then hope the job is the right one to match the tool right it's it doesn't work like that oh if it's chunky no, I soup that makes sense. i i used to do that though i mean i used to create like default templates for my projects and start using them as a basis um but what I found was that it never really worked well for the second or third project because there was always a big variety of difference. And I'd start kind of pigeonholing myself into a mess um, by doing that, essentially that by start, forcing myself to start with something, um, especially when it came to games. And I wasn't just making a repeatable web service or, or web page. You know? so, yeah. And None if, for if me. You, if if you lock yourself into one thing, then you're also like literally just locking yourself out from learning or discovering something else. If you want to get into the industry and certain things, that you're you're basically saying, I know this one thing, I don't know this other thing because I just thought that this was better. I didn't want to explore this other thing. Um, so it's worthwhile to just be versatile and, and research and just experience everything as much as you can. 
And that may sound cool at first, being like an expert in one thing, because I think we've all at one stage in our career been known as the guy that does X. And the problem is after a while, it gets fatiguing, right? Because you don't get to learn anything new. You're, you're The most fun you'll ever have in your career, no matter what you're doing, is being like third best. You always want to have someone better than you to learn from and have some yes. cool stuff yes. they can show you. And so you never want to be put in that position where you're stuck as like the guy everyone goes to, because you'll never get to improve. So always mm-hmm. pick new things and like learn stuff and... Yeah, don't don't just like lock in on something. So I popped up another question about portfolios. I, I feel like this one answered a lot, um, but I haven't answered it with Salim around, so I thought it would be kind of interesting. Oh, it's just like so. A lot of people <laughs> are junior developer, or they want to be junior developers, no experience. They want to put up a portfolio um, so that they can show off. Um, Know, something to get in, into the industry. I always recommend that people like, <laughs> assuming they're programmers, right? They're able to write the code and and build this little game. Um, that tell I always tell people like, make a little portfolio project, something that people can play in a relatively quick period of time, try out and see if it's uh, you know show that you're able to yeah. to code. Um, and it'll set you aside versus the other ones. Um, what do you? I don't know. I guess the question was, should they do more of that? As many games as possible, should they do some certificates or school? My recommendation is kind of always to do not not a whole bunch of games in a portfolio to just preview and show like one really good one or maybe two at most. But um, you should build a lot of them as you're building up the practice and stuff. Just don't show them all. Show and put forward only like the best, the best of the best and polish the shit out of that, that best thing. Um, I don't know. I don't know what it's like on the design perspective and all, all the industry thoughts on it. Man. Um, I mean, <clears throat> obviously, I didn't go to to school. I mean, I started in the military and then got into games. Um, so for me, it's all uh, it's all been hands on. Um, so I like the value of just doing of just doing the thing um, is huge to me. Um, as far as like you know, getting a job or anything like that, like being able to show off. Hey, here's a game design idea I had, and here is it implemented. Um, uh, being able to show that off shows versatility, shows willingness, shows desire, shows passion. Like it shows, it shows many things. You know, going back to Jason's earlier example in Half Life of you know this one moment in the game, the body language giving you this whole story. Seeing seeing a, a, a game designer have a personal portfolio where he's just done, you know, he from from you know inception or concept to um, to deliverable, he prototyped this thing out. Um, that shows so much about that person's character um, and his willingness and desire. Um, versus a certificate, where a certificate could be viewed by some as just you basically just filled in a bunch of boxes or just met the minimum requirements to do this thing. Um, uh, you know, being a creative, when you can express that you really want to do this by just taking on all of this, certainly as a game designer, um, because game design is such this it's a really elaborate or, or broad term um uh like being able to take on especially considering things are so accessible now i grabbed unity and i did this thing like i learned how to i in that process i not only learned how to tell the prototype or create a game or a game concept i taught myself how to use an engine i taught myself potentially how to code i taught myself potentially how to find art that was relevant or to make art myself um, I, I've, I'm showing you that I did all this in one example in a portfolio. 
whether it should be a lot or a little, it really just, I think it just depends on how how quickly you you get something or how many ideas you have that you can execute on. Um, even if even if the idea is like the greatest idea in the world, it's just about the execution and the fact that you were willing to do it and you pulled it off to a degree. Um, I think that is way more valuable. When I'm interviewing people, um, the resume doesn't mean a whole lot to me. It's just something that I can, it gives me talking points to drill deeper into them. And then how they how they react or respond to those things um, is what determines um, whether it was just something that they just happened to be a part of and they could put it on their resume or something they were really passionate about. Um, if they can show me a portfolio of this, that, and the other, you know, they have a link to something that like that helps. Um, but it really is, you know, if if I can point to a thing in a portfolio and say, well, man, like this is fantastic. How would you go about this? And they start speaking mm -hmm. about it, super passionate about it. Then you know what? Then then to me, you're, you're a game designer. Like you you truly want to do this versus just you know, oh, uh, you know, I just picked up a thing and and you know, I just thought it might be cool, and you know, I saw someone else do it and just do it together. Um, like that whole spot response and interaction um, tells a lot. Um, so yeah, I mean. Like I said, I didn't go to school. I value I value um, uh, education. Um, you know, I recently got a chance to work with someone who's fresh out of college, out of game design college, um, and came as a game designer. And I love like I love this dude so much because he's actually taught me. You know, I'm I'm going on 45 in a couple of weeks. He's a 25 year old kid. And he's taught me some things and made me step back as a game designer and reconsider and, and rethink about how I do some stuff. Um, and it's all because of the academic side of things, which I haven't um, had this, you know, personal investment in as far as game design goes. So I think both of them are super valuable, but it does come down to your personal passion um, and how you want to express that. A certificate is just a check, you know, a check in a box. Um, I think that showing that you can be creative and branch out and your willingness is like hugely important because per experience is just is huge. It, it's it means so much when it comes to getting an industry, especially if you get a job somewhere that's established. You can hit the ground running. It shows that you can be thrown in the fire. Um, uh, it, it just it just means a lot uh, from my point of view. I, I agree. I, to me, the, the most important keyword you said there is passion, 100%. And I think a lot of these questions are kind of intuitively obvious once you've done them once, the first time mm -hmm. you've ever had to hire someone. So just reverse the role, right? You're you're somebody who's been given a 100 resumes dumped on your desk. What are you actually looking for? Do you care about a list of buzzwords about various courses and technologies? Probably not. What you're looking for is you're trying to ask the question, do I want to work with this person? And how do I know if I want to work with this person? Well, are they going to be someone who will work hard? Do they enjoy what they're doing? Are they going to be fun? And like, do they look like they have ideas that would gel with what you're doing? And so the, the way I would look at it from presenting yourself in a CV or a resume is I don't need to see everything you've ever done. If there was a hundred resumes and they all have every project, every person there has ever done, I'm not going to read that. You wouldn't read that. But what you will do is you're going to look for a, a representative example of what they can do. And so you're going to want to see the best thing that they're proud of or the best couple of things. And then beyond that, they want to see that you are passionate about the topic and that you've gone above and beyond in certain areas. What I look for is, do they look like they care about the subject? Do they look like they're someone doing their own homework on the side or are they just hitting the exact minimum requirement? And so 
I often find one or two passion projects far outweighs anything else. And so the, the, the unfortunate answer is, should you do lots of games or should you have one or two? Well, the truth is you have to do lots of games to learn and get passionate, mm-hmm. but then yeah. you only present the stuff that is the one or two that's particularly valuable. So yeah, it's it depends what your objective is. Put yourself in the role of the other person and ask yourself, who would you want to hire? And can you become that kind of person? And and one one thing that shouldn't get glossed over from a game design standpoint, game designer standpoint, is you should play games. Like you should play a lot of games. When I talk about experience, like my hands-on experience is just a lot of video games. Like it, it is it, making games. Like I said, isn't easy. It's a serious job. Um, and the the thing that helps you get good. Um, is seeing and experiencing all the things that all these other great people have done in the industry, indie, AAA, whatever. There are so many great ideas and great execution on these ideas um, that can feed and just build a passion in you. If you love playing games and you wanna make them, like you just play more games and and learn to recreate or or, um, take from the examples that you, the moments that you remember in games, you want to make those again. You want to let someone else experience that stuff um, because you know, it, that, like that's what you're doing it for. The passion, the, the desire, the drive, it's all, it all part and parcel with that. Yeah, I think people that play, if you don't play a lot of games, it's hard to be a good game designer, which is probably why I don't think I'm a very good game designer because I play a lot of games, but I don't play a wide enough variety of games. I play a lot of the same games over and over. <laughs> where like I feel like you get you get really good at it because you got you know on top of the experience you got wide exposure, know everything. And I don't know how many times I've come up with an idea and presented it and you know to you or Lenny or anybody else, and they're like, oh yeah, it's like uh, these other seven games that you never played. <laughs> like you're just trying to recreate a little tiny piece of what they did. Like let me tell you the the good version of it now. <laughs> like. So it, it's a huge, huge difference. Um, it, playing lots of games is super important. I mean, yeah, obviously you got to do the work too. Though. You got to do yep. both. And yep. You got to play a variety of games, not just play. You just play Madden over and over, and that's all. You played Madden nonstop. Really, <laughs> you got to play everything. Try in it some all cases. Out. Some cases you don't know that you really want to do something until you experience it in the game. Yeah, you see it, and you're like, oh man, I, I think I actually want to try that. But I would say as well, when it comes to playing games, there's there's a general concept with all creative work which we're kind of affectionately calling doodling, which is where you can sit there and draw for five hours every day and never get better at drawing because you're putting zero effort and actually engaging in the process of getting better. You're doing it because it's fun and you're just messing around. And the same goes with any other creative work that you want to do yourself. If you play games, but you basically turn your brain off and just chill, you'll be playing games, but you're not learning anything. If you're engaging actively with the process yes, and asking yes. yourself, why is why did I enjoy this room? Why did I pick that door? You know, what is yeah. it in this space that is interesting to me? Or why why did I find that challenge harder than this one? And you can start to see there's a map of ideas, you know? So I, you have to be actively engaged in the process if you're going to get anything out of it. Yes, yes. Analyzing. Man, I got, I got stories about that. Playing games. Play, once I got in the industry, playing games is so different well i mean you know playing games you know up to military time before i got into game game reviews it, they were just games they were they were just fun memorable moments they were fantastic experiences but then once i started doing game reviews um and had to analyze them i realized that how much stuff had stuck with me and how you know, like 
why these games were so significant, why I wanted to play them. And then, of course, that leads into understanding, you know, you know, just the human brain, you know, and, and dopamine and, and just like the desire to keep doing and keep playing and keep going um, and, you know, interaction and all that stuff um, and immersion. Um, so, yeah, like you're, you're right. Like mm. it is. <laughs> I mean, at that point, I was kind of turning my brain off because I was a kid. Um, but then as an adult, I realized, um, oh, man, these moments stuck with me. Um, and here's why. Like now I realize this. And I see this in modern games, why they're doing this. So the foundation of the games that I was playing in modern day games, all these examples are totally valid. And and now, you know, I apply them when it comes to game design. And the thing is, a lot of people don't don't realize this, but when, whenever you have something in a game that, that stuck with you, like this is an industry, right? It's not just a random thing. And so what you might be surprised to find is there is like names for this stuff. There is mm -hmm. like... There is names for affordances and flow and like there's even we talked before about how games would story and that kind of thing. I always love that quote that games is the ultimate art because it encompasses all other form of art. There's drawing, there's music, there's sound, there's story, there's all this stuff. And so the complexities of stuff to do in it is massive. And so whenever you're looking this stuff up, there's there's keywords to search for. There's books on these topics. So if mm -hmm. you're looking at something and going, why did I pick that door instead of that door? You can go off and look at it and go, oh, well, it's called affordances. That's what that is. There's a certain indicator that someone put on that door that tells me that one is openable and that one isn't. And yes. how did I know that from a distance? And so if, if you're into the topic, you know, you can really engage with it academically. Like there's people have put hundreds and hundreds of hours into studying these things. So there is information out there that can really help you define like architecture. I, I love that topic because people don't appreciate how the architecture of a room in a video game is designed. Oh, yeah. Like the position yeah. of the windows is like yes. specifically to cause sight lines with light that indicate certain things. And like, like there is so many things to learn with their own names, providing you're willing to take the time to go down the rabbit yeah. hole. Framing, framing of a scene or something like that is crazy. Convincing someone to walk down a path, just using the environment. I mean, it goes back to the visual storytelling. It's you know visual gameplay and visual direction. It's all diegetic uh, interactions. I mean, they're they're huge. Not having to rely on a UI um, to tell people how to do stuff or interact or compel them to do it um, uh, is is huge. Like that, it, it, it when when that moment happens as a developer. Um, when you just see someone's eyes light up or the light bulb here appear above their head and they 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 end up doing the thing that you're just trying like it's just it's fantastic it, it, it's it's hard to like it, it's hard to beat that as far as like execution of a product um is to just get that when everything just comes together you know and you mentioned like you know we always talk about art programming and 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 game design it you you brought up the other magic word music like like the the tone of a scene with sound you know one of my favorite sounds in video games and it's really weird is footsteps like i love a silent scene when i'm just kind of walking and hearing the footfalls and going over different materials all this thing. It, it, for some reason it just like it really like resonates with me then you hit a hall where it's echoing and like kind of spooky say, like it means it, it's such a small thing but but it just like it resonates with me a bunch and it's, you know, why I love, you know, studios like or companies like Nintendo, like they nail sound so well. Like it, it, it's it's crazy. Even the 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 freaking um, the shopping uh, store 
uh, music and all the, the little, music, little yeah, sounds, yeah, stuff, yeah. little okay. sounds that you made when you click stuff. You're just like, oh my god, I, I got to keep playing and interacting with the store. Like it, it, it's nuts. Um, but yeah, I, I'm tangent now. But like we do gloss over music a whole lot. You know, my, I always my forget the sound and music even exist in games. So. <laughs> I mean, my daughter, funny enough, she she's one of the things that she said she she might want to do is make game music. And now when she told me that, I was like, oh my god, uh, like you are the greatest daughter ever. Um, uh, yeah, that's all. I, I didn't I even list music in my jobs. I did that video on game dev jobs. Audio and music, audio engineer wasn't on the list. We'll, we'll keep keep that in mind. Anybody out there who wants to go into it, that is that is a true fact all around. Most most game companies, game design, music is always considered this thing you slap on afterwards. A, a very few companies take it as seriously as it should. And in fact, I, oh, yeah. I love music to, to the point when where I have a dedicated. Time. Uh -oh. Right here, I have a different pair of headphones for gaming because of the soundstage and how it affects the music. Oh. I take that stuff really seriously. Yeah. And um, one of my favorite examples is Overwatch. And you're talking about footsteps. If you haven't heard this, you'd love it. The thing about Overwatch is it's got a huge roster of characters, like whatever, mm -hmm. 30 characters, 25 characters. Yeah. And each one of them has a unique footstep sound, not oh. just the surfaces they're on, but per character. So if you're, if you're familiar with the game and you've been playing it as long as I have and you've got a good pair of headphones, I can close my eyes and I can say, there's the Junkrat character up there, the enemy team nice. walking towards me. And the volume levels are different per character. So with just your ears, you can tell which character on which team is where, on which elevation, with which footstep sound. And if they're crouching, it muffles the sound. So I can tell there's a Reaper flanking me there, and there's a Tracer and our team over there. Mm -hmm. And then there's like all just from the soundscape. And it's fantastic. It's so, so cool. Like it's, it's just like, yeah. Such a subtle, great game design element. Now, the big question is, how intentional was that? Or was it like, hey, it's a cool different character. What are all the things that we can do to make cool? Oh, we can make different footballs. All right, that's cool. And then it might have been kind of an emergent thing that it mm. now is also a tactical advantage. Um, so it'd be interesting to, to find out if that was actually like a goal or if it just kind of came out of it. Well, they, they take their responsibility. Yeah, you have an unfair advantage. All these other people can hear things I can't hear. <laughs> Cheating. That, that's why <laughs> that's I always die. Well, that's what I find ah. is so funny, right? Like, there's that one character, Reinhardt, big guy with a shield, and normally, normally he stands in front of you, and the enemy team is like a big barrier. But if you get a really cheeky Reinhardt, he'll, like, find some high place, and he'll try to land behind you and slam a hammer into you. And I'll just be hearing going... I can I can hear a Reinhardt, but I can't see one. And I look up and go, he's up, he's gonna drop down and attack us in a second. And so I can back away because I'm I'm paying attention, you know? <laughs> and you can hear it. <laughs> <laughs> ah, it's unfair. I think that's discrimination. It's my deaf ass. <laughs> well, you you Oh well, I did not mean to click on that question. How did you start your girls out in video games? I'm a dad with two girls. Uh, you skipped over another question before that, but um, oh, I, I, that was an accident. I accidentally clicked on a question and popped one. So up, so. I have. How did you get your kids started playing video games? I have a son and a daughter, and this is a fun story to tell. Um, uh, they're a year and three months apart, four months. I forget uh, the difference between April and, and July. Uh, but um, uh, you know, my wife is, you know, she's in the games. Um, obviously, I am into games. You guys didn't realize. Um, and so, you know, games games as a medium and an interaction and how important it is uh, really showed itself when I was raising my kids. Um, at one point, um, they were playing on the Wii. They were playing, a, a, I forget what Super Mario game it was. Um, and my daughter, who really loves to read, um, 
you know, my, my wife and I were sitting there talking and I was like stopped and I just said, hey, check it out. And there was a moment when my son was playing Mario and my daughter was reading from a strategy guide telling him how to play. And so she's looking in the guide and she's pointing at the screen and she's assisting him play this game. And in that moment, I'm like, this this is this is why video games are so freaking awesome, right? Like my 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 son and my daughter are young um, and they are communicating with each other and they are getting stimulus from a screen. Um, and my son is reacting to the information he's getting from his sister. Um, and so like, like at that moment, I'm like, yep, yeah, this is great. You know, I'm fine with my kids playing games. Um, uh, it's not going to turn them into evil people or make them dumb. You know, my daughter is a straight A student. Um, she's basically spending her senior year in high school in college. Uh, my son is an AB student um, who, you know, he's in higher tiers of math and stuff like that. Um, both both my kids play video games like crazy. My, my son, <laughs> my son plays a hell out of Genshin Impact. He and I will probably be playing a bunch of Monster Hunter next week. Um, uh, you know, he's plays games. You know, till the wee hours of the night. Um, uh, and so, as far as like just getting them into it, I made it a, a point to introduce my kids to older games. Um, I am a huge Final Fantasy fan. My favorite game of all time is Final Fantasy VI. Tied with first is Chrono Trigger, another great Squaresoft game. Um, uh, and, you know, reason Final Fantasy VI is my favorite is because it's storytelling-wise and character development-wise, a, a huge roster of characters in every character you loved and you could relate to, even the, the Sasquatch. Um, um, so I made a point to introduce them to old games, um, you know, and... and you know they 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 can appreciate um, the older school thinking when it comes to games. You know one of the things that I did is um, I introduced them to EverQuest. You know one of the first MMOs um, uh, after they had played modern day MMOs, and you know I've had discussions with both of them about the idea of death penalties and stuff like that, and why it's so different nowadays. And when like instead of their reaction being oh well that sucks. They actually, we actually had a huge discussion about what uh, consequence means and accomplishment means when you have to put in a bunch of effort um, um, when you're investing in a character. And they they 100% dig it. They they completely understand it. Um, you know, I, I think the oldest game my daughter played recently uh, is Odin Sphere. Um, I had her uh, talk to her about the original Odin Sphere on PS2, which if you haven't played that, you should play it. Um, uh um it's done by uh the same team who did uh dragon's crown uh vanillaware um um but you know she played that and she 100 percent you know gets into it then that just that just ends up being a gateway into other games um but also you know she's uh, she's playing two instruments now um she likes music so introducing her to older games and and just their appreciation for music um along with the storytelling and the pacing um, it, you know, it just, it's just let her down this path, but hopefully she sticks with, you know, if she ends up doing something else and that's fine. But I know that yep. at the core, her experiencing games, um, uh, was, was huge. Um, I'm not sure what my son's going to do yet. Uh, we'll see. Um, I always hope that he'd become a game designer and we could just have like this cool, like grant, um, uh, grant games. history of, of, of game designers. And we just pass right. on the line. Did, did um, John Romero <laughs> start a studio with his son and they're making games now. That's pretty cool. 
You just gotta um, keep having more kids until you get like I've got uh, up to five now. What one of them likes the code? So uh-huh. like, <laughs> well, Joe, keep, keep, keep Joe is Joe is my nemesis. Uh, Joe is coding. Ball. Yes, he's Tape over there every day. Fun. I walk past him and he's writing code for something. He's now Tell doing him. web development stuff and bots for Discord and all kind of stuff and. He he's ready to taunt you with tape ball. Don't worry. No, he, he, I'm getting tape ball. That's it's mine. Let me go grab him. <laughs> um, but yeah. So I mean, if you have two girls, like all I can say is, you know, um, I think at one point I got I bought a um, I think a PSP at the time and just let my son sit on the couch one day and play games. He was enjoying it. Um, there was actually another point when um. I introduced my son to Final Fantasy One <laughs> uh, as a kid, and I mean he couldn't read, but it was just a it was just a curiosity of if he could actually like manipulate menus and and do stuff. And he ended up being able to go to a merchant and like buy stuff just from the cues. And this is this is an eight bit Nintendo game where he was able to to just get it just from the interaction eventually. Um, so like. It, if to me, it's always been valuable for them to have that interaction. The video games weren't a babysitter for us. Um, they were uh, uh, an, an interaction that our kids could could do and have fun um, with us or without us. I've never had a problem with it, and I think it's good for um, parents to engage their kids and let them play video games. Yeah, I think that's all. Yeah, accurate. I, I let I let them play pretty early on too. So I think it, I think it works out well. Um, as long as you manage and maintain it, and yeah, I mean, online. it all comes down to being a good parent, a good responsible parent. Um, like, yeah. you can get mad if you just are ne- neglectful to your kids. Uh, so there was one that Jason wanted to pop up. I wanted to share real quick. Uh, I, yeah, because I, I love this question. Um, I, I love teaching. I love tutoring. I, I basically, anytime I see a programming question, I can't help but dive in and try to help. Um, and you want to read it a- out loud? Question. Oh yeah. So, uh, how can I improve my teaching skills for game development? Well, I, I I would just say, how do I how do I improve my teaching skills in general? It would be more of a, a better question. But it's and this the is way I would kids specifically. Yeah. Well, I, again, I would even say I I don't think there's as much of a delineation as people think because well, kids are creative and they will just jump on anything. Like they they're they're willing to learn. They're voracious if you give them enough uh, to lean on. I would say when you're teaching anybody anything, the number one thing that I think is missed is a lot of people try to teach something without grounding of why the other person should care. So I think the very first thing you should do whenever teaching anything, any topic, and I'm going to use programming as an example because it's something I do a lot, but you start with wh- wh- why do they care to learn? What is it they want to do? So if you're teaching a, kid, a t- teaching kid a game, you would say, you know, do you want to make a game? Let's like, if we do this, you will end up making a game. So you set that sort of, this is why we're doing this. And so when when there's inevitable dips in sort of the boring technical stuff you have to cover, they've got an objective in, in mind that we're, we're working our way towards this goal. And then once you've done that, it comes down to you, you start with this incremental step of we want to do this thing. Here's how we do it. You do a small step, show the results, get the dopamine hit, successful, we did a thing, incremented, here's why we change it, and you you scale it up that way. Um, and, and that's just a general good practice, is you want to keep, people have low attention span, and they, they often forget why they're doing something if it's not for them. So if you engage people in the small step, the benefit of that too is the, 
the the strong learners, the people who are going to drive ahead, will kind of see the pattern you're going for, and they will just start going ham in a different direction. And if, you, if like I, I used to teach kids on Scratch, uh, I don't know if you know Scratch. It's a it's like a Lego block programming language thing. And you would start with, we'll just move this cat character around the screen and you can click the mouse and whatever. And you'd be looking over and some of the kids are like changing the cat's color and doing different stuff and mm -hmm. doubling the speed values. And you're like, cool, I've, I'm kind of stepping through what we're doing, but I'm, I'm giving you the leeway that if you're getting bored because I'm going too slowly, you can see the direction to sort of create it in a different way. So, so yeah, it, it's all about making learning fun by engaging with the process. And as a final note, if you're teaching somebody something more technical. So they're doing it one way and you're trying to teach them a new way. Uh, always validate the solution they have. This is something subtle that people miss as well. So if someone says, how should I architect my game code or whatever, you start with saying, here is our problem. We need an inventory full of items. Let's do it the simple way. This is how you're probably doing it and say, that's fine. It's valid. It works. But here's what can go wrong. Here's how you make it better. So if you just jump to this is the right answer, it puts you in this position of like you're you're demeaning the work they've done, but you have to treat it as a step of educational improvement. So you validate that what they did makes sense with the knowledge they have, and then you propose new information and scale it up beyond that point. And it's, you, have, you have to acknowledge the fact that you had to learn this too. And people often want to be reminded that you're learning as well, right? It's an ongoing process. So if you're willing to admit, I didn't understand this, I had to learn this, now I know it, I'm now telling you, and we can kind of learn together it makes the whole process fun and engaging for everybody. So yeah, I, I take this, I take this topic particularly seriously. So I have a quite, I have a follow up question in regards to that related to this. So how do you, so in that process, cause everyone learns differently. Do you have a method for learning how people learn? Cause obviously that's going to help. That's going to inform how you interact with them, whether visual learners or, or whatever. True. I, so what I do is, is I find that you, you are always, there's always a problem with teaching a group of people at once. And so if it's in that scenario, it's much harder. But what I do is I, I find I try to aim for more towards the slower people who are having trouble getting the concepts. And if they're a particular kind of learner, you, you do as I think what you're implying is the idea of having different ways of learning. So some people having notes alongside the video or the visuals or whatever mm -hmm. to give different people different things to learn. But two things I like to do is I like to throw buzzwords in. Now, some people stay away from buzzwords because they think if you're teaching somebody, that sounds scary. But what I'll do is I'll describe the topic in plain English, and then I will throw a buzzword in and then not expand on it and say, and that is called X. And that's sort of like the hook for people who are self-learners, that they have a word to go and search and yeah, compound on the go ideas. Back to. Yep. Yep. And, and that that's my sort of get out of jail free card where I give them some way to sort of, if, if I'm not doing a good job explaining this, you know the word that I'm dancing around for you to go find. And if I'm lucky enough that I can have a 1v1, uh, what I tend to do is I, I treat it more metaphorically. So I, mm -hmm. I get a lot of people will make jokes about it in, in the various discourse I'm in. I do a lot of like, I, I will describe things with metaphors all of the time because there's nothing better than trying to pick something that's common ground. Like I will, I'll describe complex programming concepts as like baking a cake or building a house or because there's sort of an intuitive understanding about the, the relationship of things. If you, if, because the relationship is more important than the words. A lot of people get caught up with programming yeah. as, oh, it's all these buzzwords and but it's not. It's like, do you understand the relationship between these two things? And if you can a get relatable that concept, series of events. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Gotcha. So combination of metaphors and leaving enough keywords yeah. that if I'm failing to educate, they're there for other people to hook onto. Yeah, your thing about buzzwords is it's funny. It's 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 
you know, it's something that you're relating to that they can instantly go back to and say, okay, this buzzword means this. It's the, one of the core reasons why I tell people to put numbered bullet points in their game design docs, because when someone's looking at your doc, they can say, oh, section bullet point 1A or 1AA versus dot, empty dot, um, square. Like it, it's it, people, it's such a subtle thing and people don't realize that like, it's really easy for someone to reference your document when you can just give them a guide. Um, so yeah, I, I can totally relate to that buzzwords thing. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it, this is the whole thing as well. Like going down this rabbit hole that Jason has also covered is the concept of programming design patterns. It, it, it's it's a contentious point because a lot of people think a design pattern <clears throat> is like a stamp of good code you can just slap into your project, but that's not mm -hmm. what it's for. It's the exact opposite. It's what you're describing, which is we're trying to describe this like relationship of 10 things in the middle of a conversation about something mm -hmm. else. We're building a health system. How do we talk about it? If you can just say, oh, we're going to use an observer pattern here, or when we're getting these objects, we're going to use a factory pattern. That's not telling you how you should code. That's telling you there is a named rough concept of how this architecture works that we can all intuitively just grab onto, and then we can figure out the details later. They're meant to be uh, terminology to, to smooth those conversations. And so I often get frustrated when people ask, like, how do I apply X pattern to my project? It's like, no, you don't do that. You use it as a, you name the thing that you're doing with mm -hmm. the pattern so you can describe it better. It's not, a, it's not about stamping them into your code. Sometimes it's... The um, I think sometimes when they're asking that, that it's uh, more on how do I do like a standard implementation of that so that it, it it's very obvious what it is. Like if you're if you're following a specific pattern, you may want to follow certain common naming and types of things. That that I think is a useful one to kind of understand, like understanding like common naming around patterns so that your pattern is very visible and obvious to everybody that's jumping into it. True. Yeah. But yeah, I think in general, like if you're just trying to shove a pattern in, um, yeah, you want to not do that. You want to be thinking about like, this actually fits to this pattern. Uh, you have a problem and you have these patterns that you've seen and you've seen them as solutions and they might fit in as the solution too. Um, but to, I, to I, I thing, usually... Right? I, I usually, well, I agree with you. I usually shy away from teaching them for the one reason that a lot of patterns, if you try to apply them, you often don't really understand the problem they're solving. And so you're sort of hacking them in. If you forget about applying them from a pattern first perspective and just learn the problem, learn the solution. And then right at the end, you go, and that's called a repository. You're like, oh, so that's what, it, like the name should be, you have learned a concept. Sure. Now mm -hmm. we're going to yes. name it. Versus a lot of a lot of education is people will get a book, they'll read the words, and they'll say, "In this situation, I apply this." And I find that's if you if you lock it in your brain that this word equals this stamp of code, people have a hard time divorcing that from the fact that it is meant to be a solution to solve a problem. Right. Yeah, my favorite thing on design patterns is still that Pluralsight library. It's like eighteen hours of I think like twenty or thirty videos or, or little mini yeah, courses that are each a half hour. Yeah, and it's like. The intro is like, here's the problem. Here's a possible solution with it. Here's here's a solution. Here are the problems with our solution. Here's how we could implement this design pattern as a as a fix for it. Like it's like step by step of like, here was the reason that we actually did it. The reason that we had to change the code in the first place. That you're not just doing it pointlessly. At least that's how most of them were. It's you know, it's a variety yeah. of them, but it's like a good I, like I, kind I'd of like overview to, to understand the names really quickly. I have like nine or 10 years of Pluralsight. I've just been, my whole, I just, I love it. I've just been using it forever. It's such a good resource. <laughs> it's, it's good stuff. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. I think we're going to probably wrap up pretty soon. I know there are a couple more questions. There was one about um, 
should you take a the somebody that's apparently 16 and getting job offers wanting to know if they should stick to their own projects or take the job works i would try doing the job requests i mean if uh, if it's an opportunity there like take it Uh, that's one thing you got to do like Mm -hmm. when opportunities pop up just jump on them like i mean assuming that you think you can do it and you're willing to put in the effort to do it just jump on it and and do it like passing up on opportunities is almost never a good idea the six years of experience i assume is is personal experience it, it, i would assume so yeah at so 16, yeah i mean started coding early and ready to learn yeah. yeah i mean at I 16, jump on it. getting into the industry and getting that experience that early i mean the super effects chip for the uh super nintendo was made by like i think a 19 year old who who reverse engineered to the game boy to do 3d graphics um and that was huge for nintendo so yeah like do it Just remember like you can always quit a job if, if you take yep. the job and it ends up being terrible and it's keeping you from growing yep. your career you know you can always quit and do it again you, you can't always go back and retake a job that you passed on though or an opportunity so i'd say jump on the opportunities as they appear um if they seem and, good and, and it's yep. one of those really frustrating things to say because a lot of people don't like to hear it but there's other stuff to learn other than just the code until you've worked with people in a team there's so much about personal boundaries and respecting other people's work and learning how to work in a team and how to communicate and so even if it's just from the perspective of and also different sizes like the the experience you'll have working with a 20-person team is different than the experience you'll have working with a three-person team and the kinds of projects you'll work on so any opportunity take it like i i can't vouch for everybody but i've worked in like japanese banks i've worked working back in oh, supermarkets. Wow. I've worked, wow. um, I've done mobile apps, desktop apps, website apps, services. I've worked on Unity projects. And every single one of those gives you new and different stuff. Yes. And, yes. and it's so valuable to be able to just pull from so many different resources that like any opportunity you can take it, take it, you know? Yeah, as a, as a creative, new experiences are what, you're, what, you're, what drives you. I mean, it's, and learning how to become a professional, at 16, learning how to become a professional is just going to be great um but yeah like that is it's going to inform so much stuff you do in your life um you know you have to interact with other people i mean at least most of us do um so learning how to to take in um stimulus from other people's personalities and learning um social cues stuff like that it's just going to be great for you and if i can give one one bit of advice from personal failing is it's going to be very easy to see yourself as new and younger and smarter and kind of all these great ideas. And you'll be coming into experience scenarios saying that's not done the right way and it's frustrating. And I, I probably spent the first few years of my creative career kind of being frustrated that everything seems outdated and wrong and they're not following the conventions and doing the stuff it should be done. And the truth is, maybe they know more than I do. Maybe there's some reason they're doing it the way they're doing it. (laughs) And if you have a bit of empathy for the fact that they're not idiots, they've been doing this for X number of years, there's probably something to learn there. So try to to learn with open mind that like, you may may have stuff to teach them, but there's a very good chance they have stuff to teach you, right? So try to be open-minded and not think that you're you're the smart one, that no one is listening or understanding your new modern techniques of doing stuff. (laughs) I've done that many times myself. (laughs) <laughs> like I don't know what the fuck's wrong with everybody. Yeah, years know, later realized like I it was me. <laughs> Jason Jason used to tell me that I I was really bad and make fun of me all the time. He used I, to still me up. Yeah, I still do. <laughs> terrible, 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 <laughs> terrible at video games. Yeah. 
Oh man. I, I love running running game ideas by Salim is the best because it'll just go like my terrible game idea suddenly becomes something cool like in, you know within five minutes. I tell people it's like five minutes in. I'm like, all right, I gotta call you back because they had too much shit to do now. Like, just <laughs> it, it, the scope of my game has quadrupled in the matter of five minutes of, of cool <laughs> ideas and things that I never would have thought of. Uh, no, he's giving me way too much credit. But they're all terrible ideas. Don't get don't get me wrong. Yeah, they're all they're all they're all bad, terrible <laughs> ideas. <laughs> Jason's Jason's ideas were fine. Well, then, right. then, you uh, know what? I'll I'll gift you. You can have the bullet tree. You can run with that. Oh man, bullet tree is is done. Like it's. Hey. Oh, we didn't NDA that. <laughs> <laughs> tree that shoots out bullets. I like. I, yeah. I was thinking maybe I just put some turrets on the tree too. Just have them pop down. <laughs> some auto tracking turrets. I want to do one with the uh, animation IK cases. The the new IK animator thing in Unity. So I think, yeah, I may just do some turrets attached to the tree that pop out, like branches that just aim at you. I have the branches just turn a little rocket launcher on there, may shoot out acorns. <laughs> I mean, it, it, if you've ever if you've ever played a pseudo fifty one game, a bullet tree would fit right in any one yeah, of his games. Everyday stuff here. <laughs> oh man. Well, well, I guess we could probably just wrap it up here and meet back again um, next week. If everybody hits the like and subscribe and alert and stuff, then they'll get to see it next week. Might do more streams throughout the week. I've been doing a couple a week lately, so get some people in and hop in. But hopefully both of you guys are free on next Sunday. We can hop in some more and talk about more game dev stuff or design things and other shit, um, whatever comes up. So. I guess just thanks everybody for coming out. I don't know. You guys have anything else you want to talk about or say before we end it and wrap up? No, no. My first time I had fun. Maybe. I'll yeah. It, if you like having Salim here, make sure that you leave a comment and say that Salim has to come back. So he doesn't try to be like, oh, everybody hated me last week. I don't want to come <laughs> hey, back. I, I, I've already <laughs> seen questions asking what your YouTube channel is. So you're, you're the new person who has to set up his own. I have been telling Salim to make a YouTube channel pretty much ever since I started one. He's so, been, he's yeah. been, he's been on me about it for sure. Yeah. I don't know. I maybe think it would be great. Salim's great <laughs> to talk to all kinds of great insight on just the game industry and, He's played every video game ever made, oh, so he can talk about every game and working uh, yeah, in the industry, <laughs> all that fun stuff. <laughs> I'm sure there's there there's probably a game out there you haven't played. I don't know what it is yet. Overwatch. I have not played Overwatch. Oh, well, if you like footstep sounds, there you go. There's a treat for you. <laughs> yeah, now you now you realize definitely, how much you're missing out, right? As weird as it is, it definitely like piques my interest because I don't think people think about footfalls much in video games. But, oh yeah, uh, I can see it. Swim's gonna tell me next week that he's playing Overwatch. Like, yeah, I only play this Overwatch now for footstep sounds. <laughs> unfortunately, next week is going to be owned by Monster Hunter uh, Rise uh, on the yeah. Switch which will keep me around for a long time. And I'm currently playing um, Gunfire Reborn. That's my current game. Mm, nice, nice. Good? Yeah, it's like, cool. a, it's like a roguelite um, dungeon crawlery thing where you get crazy weapons and you modify them as you go. And at, at the end of each couple of rooms, you get an upgrade to like your abilities or your gun damage or whatever. Oh, okay. Like, All right. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that. Um, I'll have to check it out. And because it's Unity and I can't help myself, I did take a little peek under the hood. I decompiled the code and had a look at what they're doing. And it looks good. It's cool. Cool. Oh. Now, if we can Fun just stuff. get Silk Song to come out next week, 
then uh, I'd be happy. Well, now. if you do that, none of us will be online for a few days. <laughs> <I think. laughs> the other game that I've been looking forward to, sorry to extend it, but the other game I've been looking forward oh. to that's been teased forever is the freaking Biomutant game. I don't know if you've seen that. Um, it's like open world 3D yeah. with the Kung Fu raccoon. Like they've been teasing things forever. I think it's supposed to come out this year. It looks cool as hell. But I'm like, man, at this point, do I even care? Like, you, you guys, please give me the game for free now because I've been waiting <laughs> for so long. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. Silk Song, I think it's supposed to drop in the summertime. Um, I really hope. I, God, I want to play the game so bad. So bad. I'm well, checking out this Biomutant trailer now. <laughs> but I mean, like, seriously, they've been teasing it for so long and it looks really cool. Um, just like the combat and this different stuff you can do, like rolling around like a chi ball and doing some um, Katamari Damacy stuff. Like it, 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 it looks it looks cool as hell. But seriously, I think it's been teased for like two or two and a half years. It reminds me of uh, Prey um, <laughs> and the years of <laughs> of coming out but not coming out. Um, same, same with uh, what is it, uh, Duke Nukem Forever? The oh God! Adventure. Yeah, you just switch engines a couple times. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but yeah, so that was it for me. All right, well, yeah, thanks again, guys, and uh, thanks everybody for coming out, watching, and hanging out with us, asking questions. Make sure that you hit like, subscribe, share, uh, or yeah, just before you leave, go copy the link and go share it on Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff. That'd be good. That, that's 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 the best way to end it. And uh, yeah, we'll see you again uh, next next week. Have a lot of fun. All right. Cool. Thanks again, everybody. I'm gonna find the button that says that I'm going away now and click on it. <laughs>